Ladies and gentlemen, recorded in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada, it's time for Fight Night Picks with your host, Frank and Matt Big time week coming up in MMA. We have the final, and I we, hopefully we can say the final booking of Derek Brunson taking on Darren Till in the main event of this card. As always, one half of your host, Neil Craig Allen. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Craig Allen FNP. With me to my left, to your right, Matt Allen FNP on the respective socials. Matt, last weekend we had a wild card. Mahmoud Muradov gets beaten by Gerald Mearshart. You have two ultimate fighters crowned. One of the craziest fights we've seen in a while, Ricky Tercios against Brady Heastan, Brian Battle getting rocked early against Gilbert Urbina, and in the main Brian event, Edson Barboza ends up getting flatlined and just wobbled by Giga Chikadze. And in the comments section, we said if Giga Chikadze was able to get the win over Edson Barboza, we would shoot some of the Dustin Poirier's hot sauce. So Matt, I picked up a brand new bottle of uh, cap didn't come off great there, and now I'm going to get it on my fingers and hopefully not touch my eyes. But I said that we'd shoot it. So Matt. You haven't shot this before. Yeah, but, I have. Well, you have. Well, what are your feelings on the Poirier's Louisiana hot sauce? The taste is great. Now, not in these quantities, I will admit. It's not the most desirable drink to have, but I gotta be honest, I'm a big fan of the sauce. You can put it in a lot of stuff. It's very versatile. It doesn't have a very overpowering flavor. I'm honestly a really big fan of the product. These are giant uh, really shot are. glasses, so just keep that one just... in mind. Yeah, get it going. Well, I'm just trying to make it equal. Yeah, that's pretty well equal. Okay. All right. We'll do the old uh, Fight Night Picks cheers. Let's get into it. Here we go. All right. So, overall, a great card. We have a lot of different fights we can talk about as possible. Fight of the night. What are you saying? Uh, personally, I look at Tom Aspinall versus Sergey Spivak as a very exciting fight. I know Sergey Spivak doesn't always have the most exciting fights, but Tom Aspinall really is that kind of prospect in this division. So, I know I'm really looking forward to that fight. Another one I really like, too. Paddy Pimblett making his UFC debut. I think he could be a huge name in the UFC because he does have that it factor in interviews outside the UFC. So if he is able to get a few wins under his belt, he could be a guy that the UFC rushes to get into the top 15 quick. Couple of Canadians representing Quebec as well. Marc-Andre Barriot and uh, Charles Jourdain should be great fights. Matt, we have a, lo- a lot of great ones. That hot sauce Charles is not... Charles Jourdain, Julian is another good one. That hot sauce is not subsiding. So let's throw... On over to our Fight of the Night screen, as always, presented by Manscaped. Alright, so my mouth wasn't hot, but I couldn't stop hiccuping. We got two great picks for Fight of the Night. David Zavada, Alex Morono. Morono in on short notice, replacing Sergey Kondoshko. This is such a great striking matchup here. Craig loves Alex Morono in Fight of the Nights because he delivers every single time. He's one of those guys who, whether it's on a week's notice or two months' notice, he's going to give you a great fight, and he's proven that time and time before. David Zavod is a tricky opponent, too, and he's one of those unique stylistic matchups to where we don't really know what we're going to get out of either fighter in this one, so I do think it's going to be a phenomenal fight. Absolutely love this one and a great opportunity. Morono with a performance bonus his last time out. Zavada's got one and a Fight of the Night in his back pocket as well. Let's flip it on over to our second pick. Juicy J, Juicy, taking on Charles-Air Jourdain. Such a good fight. Jourdain out of that tricky southpaw stance. Julian Rosa is always in your face, and he doesn't stop. That's why this one, again, Coolio, a little bit of a mix with that, and like a, I don't know, like an early Campbell-McLaren. 
We're getting into a striker's paradise. I absolutely love this fight. I don't see this one going to the scorecards. I really don't. And I know we've had a lot of bad decisions lately, so hopefully this won't fall in line with that. But Shaljolday is that kind of a finisher. He gets stronger as the fight goes on. And the exact same thing can be said for Julian Arosa. That's why this fight is going to be phenomenal. I know it's a little weird being at 150 pounds, but I still think we're going to get a great version of both fighters. The hot sauce affecting Matt inside of his mouth. I can hear it. But we've got a great fight card coming up. The fight in the night screen, as always, presented by Manscaped. Check them out manscaped.com use the promo code fnp you're gonna get 20 percent off and free shipping and i suggest you do check it out because they definitely have great products and i'll be talking about my balls and matt will as well later on in the show all right so we're men of our word we held up our end of the bargain poirier's louisiana style hot sauce it's made up here in canada and thunder bay which is a ways away from us where we're at right now but matt Fight Night Picks, we have a great slate of fights coming up this week. Let us know down below in the comments section who you have in some of these marquee matchups. And if you can't get enough of Fight Night Picks, I suggest you check out our second channel. It's called 15-Minute Card Breaks. And we started back looking at sports cards, talking about them, opening the new UFC Panini Prisms. But now, we've got one of the new boxes, UFC Select. It's an H2 hybrid box. You're not going to want to miss some of the pickups that we got out of this one. Some really neat rookie cards, too, eh? Oh, yeah. We got a lot of really cool ones. And... Not to mention, also open a CFL box. Don't know if there's a lot of Canadian football fans out there, but we just have a lot of different variety on that channel. So maybe you do like the basketball and different sports references that we like to throw at you. And find us over there at 50 Minute Car Break. Matt's getting some cotton mouth. I am warm in my chest. I can't wait for this card, and I know you can't either. So without further ado, as we always say with Fight Night Picks, let's, let's get, get into it. it. Big time banger. Coming up this weekend at 135 pounds, we have, you have to call me Dragon, Jonathan Martinez taking on Pitbull, Marcelo Rojo. Matt, I can't wait for this one. I had this one penciled as a possible fight in the night and a 50-50 fight because both of these guys can absolutely get it done, whether it's on the feet, whether it's on the mat. Very well-rounded fighters, all action type of fighters too. And for Jonathan Martinez, to my right, which is your left, I have a poster and there's a little squiggle on there and it's like, you know, the movie that I referenced earlier. You see that smudge there? Well, when you meet Randy Jackson, you got to get his autograph, right? So for Jonathan Martinez, I've got the autograph on the UFC Moncton poster. That was his UFC debut. And I've never seen a more uncomfortable guy doing uh, an interview with media. And there were like, I think there were three different outlets there. Fight Night Picks, Cage Side Press, and MMA Junkie. Shut but Jonathan Martinez making his debut. He's quiet. He's humble. And he lets his performances speak for him. Now, I know in his last time out, Davey, who stoned the Navy and probably will be for life, stole that thunder in a big-time way. But for Jonathan Martinez, this is a guy that's continued to progress. Whether it was when he was in Texas, he was working at a, a seed farm before he really kind of made it big on the big stage with the UFC. Since then, moved over to Colorado, training at a Factory X Muay Thai. He's going to be taking on Entram Gym's own Marcel Rojo, a guy that's training with Kid Kavenbo. Johnny Munoz, you saw how good he was in his last fight, as well as Brandon Moreno. And I know for Marcelo Rojo, he's been training at the PI as well the last week or two, kind of getting acclimated to Vegas. And of course, this card, 
a little bit of a weird one because originally it was scheduled for London, then it was pulled back over to the States, and you're going to see a lot of fighters representing the United Kingdom and Europe on this one as well. But Matt, this is such a great fight, and I haven't really talked a lot about Marcelo Rojo because I was going to save that for a Fight Night Picks rookie review, but really, it's from our second channel, 15-minute card breaks. If you haven't checked it out yet, you should. Link down below in the description. Let's get a better look at Marcelo Rojo and what he brought into the cage before his insane fight with Charles Jourdain. And he's taking on one tough Argentinian in El Pitbull, Marcelo Rojo. And Matt, we went back and watched a ton of tape on Marcelo Rojo. And it was originally for his fight against Howney Barcelos that didn't happen. I mean, Barcelos, it would have been a short notice replacement for uh, Rojo coming in there. Barcelos out due to COVID. Rojo was holding out for UFC contract. He hasn't fought in some time. The last time we saw him in the octagon was a year and four months ago. But it wasn't an octagon, it was a cage, and it was circular with combate. And Rojo got the biggest win of his career over Victor Madrigal. And if you go back and watch that fight, amazing. A full extension overhand right that knocks Madrigal back on the cage. Big win, but I went back and I looked at how good Victor Madrigal was or could have been and some decent level of competition. So I throw a lot of credit Rojo's way for Marcelo Rojo. Wow, this guy's a good striker. I think that the line on this is absolutely out to lunch. I think it's way too steep because for Marcelo Rojo, well, what does he do well? Some of the things that Charles does, I mean, he moves forward great. He pumps out the double jab. He whips out a nice leg kick. He throws good combinations. He's got a nice knee up the middle, and he does have a laser and dynamite right hand. And yes, he went full extension against Madrigal, but if you want to go back and watch some good fights, even in his fight against John Castaneda, who has a propensity to get backed up until he cracks. Look at the fight against Eddie Wineland. But in the fight, Rojo did a good job of whipping that uh, cross out there. He was doing a good job. The straight right, the right cross, whatever he needs to do. Rojo is an all-action fighter. I love this matchup, Matt. Stylistically, it's great. It's not difficult to find the chin of Charles Jourdain. And you can find the chin of Marcel Rojo as well. The difference is... Charles Jodet has all those really good southpaw attacks. And that's going to be very important in this fight because Marcelo, although he is traditionally an orthodox fighter, he will get the southpaw look. And what I really like from Rojo is he uses his right hand kind of like he uses his left hand. He will still throw the double jab out of the southpaw position, but he won't stay in southpaw for a very long time. He really only switches stances to throw something, give his opponent a different look, and he's right back into orthodox. All right, Matt. So Marcelo Rojo, we talked about it. He does the... The weird T-Rex thing when he wins is kind of creepy. His last fight at 135 pounds was back when he took on Sexy Mexi, John Castaneda. That was in 2019, two years and three months ago. For Jonathan Martinez, he has missed weight in the past in that Frankie Sainz fight. Or Sainz, he weighed in at 140.5 pounds, so you hated to see that. I was somewhat surprised that this fight right here is at 35, but I think it's a great one, and it should deliver. This will be a phenomenal fight, and these are two fighters who don't mind getting hit to give a hit. Now, for Jonathan Martinez, that is to a massive detriment. Where is his ceiling? 
That's the thing. I may have once said way back when, maybe it was right before the Davy Grant fight, that Jonathan Martinez could be a top 15 fighter in featherweight or bantamweight. It really was just up to him to figure out which weight class he was going to decide to go into. And then in his last fight at 135 pounds, I think it showed that there are real effects to him cutting down to 135 pounds. You can tell that his chin's just not the same at 135 pounds than it is at 145 pounds. Even look back at the Thomas Almeida fight. That fight was up at featherweight, and he eats big shots from Thomas Almeida. And I understand... Almeida isn't the top tier fighter that a lot of people thought he was going to be, but he's still a phenomenal striker who has really heavy hands, and the fact that Jonathan Martinez was able to eat shots from a guy like Thomas Almeida made me think going into the Davy Grant fight, well, I know Davy Grant all of a sudden has hammers for hands, but still, I don't think he hits that much harder than Thomas Almeida. That was a weird performance from Jonathan Martinez too, because... Davy Grant was the better fighter, but it was just one technique that kept on landing over and over. The left hook for Davy Grant was absolute money in that fight. And after it landed one time on Jonathan Martinez, it just kind of froze him almost. And he was extremely susceptible to that shot over and over again. We talk about fighters like Max Holloway is a good example of a guy who makes adjustments inside of the fight. And it seems like he's always getting better. Jonathan Martinez can make adjustments in between rounds, but it's almost like he relies on his coach to give him that information and be like, hey, Jonathan, look for X, Y, and Z, and then I'll go out there and implement the game plan. With Martinez, I do worry a little bit about those kind of adjustments on the fly. And that's going to be the important thing against a guy like Marcelo Rojo. Because in Rojo's last fight, we kind of saw everything we needed to know about him against Charles Jordan. That is arguably the fight of the year so far this year, and he gives it just as much as he takes it in that fight. He has some phenomenal moments against a really, really talented striker in Jordan, but the problem was that He's almost too tough for his own good. He starts getting lit up with power shots in that third round, and a lesser man would have gone down from the first one. Rojo ends up eating. It's one of those, like, Piotr Jan, Jose Aldo fifth rounds, where by the end of it, you're like, okay, it's, yeah, close your eyes, kids. This isn't for you. But it just, it shows what kind of a fighter Rojo is. He's got that forward pressure you love. I'd say he has good but not great knockout power. He is a guy who does rely on his volume a little bit to get guys out of there, but I really think that both guys' styles play into each other. Jonathan Martinez can counter on the outside, and Rojo with his forward pressure. If you look at it from Marcelo Rojo, he's representing Argentina. I saw a neat little video on Gian Kin's Instagram where she was hanging out with Marcelo Rojo with the PI and they were kind of hyping up each other's fights. That was pretty neat. But for Rojo, and I bring in that Argentinian connection, he had a fellow countryman in Guido Canetti that put on a decent account of himself against Mano Martinez last weekend. And for Jonathan Martinez, the same can be said in different ways. I mean, Factory X, you're going to have different fighters from that gym on this card. But another teammate in an upper weight class in Dustin Jacoby looked great last okay. weekend. So it should be a really one, a good one. Uh, there's a lot of different teammate connections. I was in agreement, had that written in my notes. I mean, for Rojo... That was a fight of the year on incredibly short notice against Charles Jordan. Can I just say this about Davy Grant too? A lot of people think Jonathan Martinez losing to Davy Grant is like, oh, your career's over. Davy Grant himself is in what also could be fight of the year against Marlon Vera, who is a top fighter at this weight class. So I don't think that just because Jonathan Martinez lost to Davy Grant, now we can just completely write him off against any fighters. I mean, you look at the losses for Martinez. He came in on short notice up a weight class, took on Andre Sukumtoth. And I say that because Martinez at one point Fought at flyweight. So I was really surprised. Like the weight issues. Going up to 45. When he came into the UFC. He was definitely a lighter guy. And you could see the difference. When he took on Sukumtoth. He loses that fight. You look at his other losses. Obviously the Davy Grant fight. The Andre Ewell split decision fight. And then you look at some of the wins. We'll go with his last three. Liu Pinyuang. He finishes him. Frankie Signs is no longer in the UFC. Thomas Almeida, yikes. And then still a good win. The other win was Waligi Beren, who is no longer in the UFC. So it is a little tricky. 
for Marcelo Rojo. You pick it out. I mean, he had great success over with Combate. Fabian Galvan, uh, Jesse Strader that somehow ended up in the UFC. That's kind of crazy. And then the win over Victor, Hu Victor Hugo Madrigal that we talked about in that rookie review. Matt, we look at the odds for this one. The third biggest mover and shaker on this card so far is Marcelo Rojo at a 38% clip. He opened a plus 210 underdog. He's a plus 130 right now. For Jonathan Martinez, open a minus 250. He's a minus 158 or thereabouts. Matt, we haven't looked at the topology yeah. votes. They're surprised to us as they are to you. Oh, wow. wow. 416 total votes, so a limited sample size. 82% Martinez, 70% by decision. For the 18% that have Rojo, 47% by decision, 44% by knockout. Listen, it's an all-action type of fight. It's a striker's paradise type of fight. When you're making the pick for this one, it is really tough. Like I said from the start, I have it as a 50-50. Those odds are closing in on about even, and I bet we're going to get closer as the week goes on. Who are you taking here? So I'm going to look stupid no matter what I say. Because here's the thing. If I pick Jonathan Martinez, there's a very good chance he gets overwhelmed by the pressure of the hope up against the cage. And we can see like a standing TK or maybe he does finish him up against the cage. If I pick Rojo, he's just going to walk into a bunch of shots by Jonathan Martinez. And this will be the one fight where Jonathan Martinez really does use his footwork on the outside and looks really good. Maybe against my better judgment, I'm actually going to go with the underdog. I do like Loho in this fight, and I do like his volume and his output. If you lose to a guy like Charles Jordan, it's not the end of the world, especially the type of fight he had against Jordan. I think Jordan is a much more difficult opponent for Loho than even Jonathan Martinez will be. And if we do get a similar version of Loho like we saw his last time out, I do think it'll be enough to beat Martinez, because the thing about Martinez is that he's good at catching guys on the way in, but once they do get on the inside, he does struggle at creating that distance again, and I think that's something I'll continue to have struggles with. If you look at it for Marcelo Rojo, he lost to John Castaneda, he lost to Charles Jordan. Both of those guys are southpaws. What's John the Martinez? He kind of switches, but he will strike from southpaw. Southpaw, And I think the movement on the outside behind the black lines. Now there's only one black line on that uh cage True. in the what the apex which i found surprising but normally there's two and jonathan martinez is one of those guys that has success back there i think he's going to be the bigger fighter coming in here which seems kind of silly i feel weird for saying it i like martinez ever so slightly but again i'll concede this fight is a 50 50 type of fight and somebody's gonna win it's most likely not going to be a draw so we're split on the pick at the start of the week but this should be a great one i've got it penciled in as a fight of the night contender i've got martinez you've got rojo let us know down below in the comments section who you have in this fight it should be a great one up at the top Spivak coming in on short notice taking on aspinall and in the main event holy smokes Derek brunson darren till you're not going to want to miss keep it locked in with fight night picks and as we always say let's, let's get, get into, into it, it. Really looking forward to our next fight coming up at middleweight. This was a bout that was originally scheduled back in August. They moved it a couple of weeks. We have Dolce Lunjambula, the former light heavyweight and heavyweight champion from EFC. Crazy to see a short king like that winning on the biggest stage. He's going to be taking on Quebec Canada's own Marc-Andre Barrio. Matt, I absolutely love this fight because both of these guys stylistically match up very, very well. If you want to see a highlight real win for Marc-Andre Barrio, that might not necessarily be in the UFC. If you want to see the UFC one, Oscar Piotta fight. Did he test positive for Oscar after that yeah. fight and it ended up as a no contest? Maybe, but it was a short window of a suspension and it seemed like a little bit of a slap on the wrist and a, you know, a non-starter of an issue. But for Barrio, he took on a guy that should have ended up in the UFC and was from... Well, around Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada and Adam Hunter, the war master. And if you go in and watch that one, it's it's an amazing fight. And for Barrio, he's able to withstand. He's able to get the big win in that one. 
So far in the UFC, a little bit of a sketchy track record. He lost his first three fights, albeit against decent competition. I know a guy who trains out of Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and Andrew Sanchez. That was his first loss. He lost a split decision to Christophe Jaco, where Jaco was able to strike at range, but really when Badio had success, it's like most of his fights, he's able to clinch up really tire and wear on his opponent and that's kind of the big key for Marc-Andre Berriot and he lost to Jin Young Park who I think stylistically they match up really similarly after that of course he finishes Oscar Piata and in his last fight four months ago well he lost handily against uh Abu Zaitsar in the first round and then Abu blew his load and in the second round he looked terrible and in the third round he got finished and that is really a testament to Marc-Andre Berrio. He's always there throughout the fight. He might look a little labored, but I think the move to Sanford MMA for Berrio has really started to pay off more so and more so with every single fight. Some of the guys that he's training with, I wrote it down, but Andre Fialo was one of those guys. Who else do we have in there? Ian Gary, the Cage Warriors champ. Uh, Anglaun Song, Impa Kasanganai. Uh, who else? I also had I had written down and this one's just terrible, but the guy got in that got into the bar fight, Joe Schilling, he's been yeah. training there with him. So for Buddy O, you like all of those things. For Dolce Lunjambula, he was on the Congolese national team from 2007 to 2009 in judo. He's a black belt in judo. And you say judo, and you kind of think maybe like judo thunder, like Abdul Razak Al Hassan, because both guys have power with judo backgrounds. But for Dolce Lunjambula, Cardio has always been an issue. It's always been a question mark. And in his last fight, I remember Daniel Cormier mentioned it when he was taking on Marcus Perez. It was like he holds his breath when he goes to shoot or throw his shots, which you hate to see. But in that fight, he did great in the first round, great in the second round. Third round was definitely Perez's. So in a fight like this, that was his first test at 185 pounds. First time in his career he went down there. He just turned 36 coming into this one about a month ago. So... Happy birthday, Dolce Lunjambula. And he's training with one of my favorite coaches and trainers in the game. Black Cobra Striking Systems own Dewey Cooper. So you love to see that, but also at Extreme Couture with the likes of Francis Ngannou. And the list goes on. Really, who's going to be able to outlast two? And can Dolce Lunjambula knock out Marc-Andre Berrio? That's pretty much the only question in this fight. And for Dolce, it will be interesting. Against Marcus Perez, he looked terrible in that third round. Like, he looked awful. And it was just because of his cardio. Because with Lunjambula, you know how good he is on the feet and you know how much power he brings into the cage? He's just somebody who struggles to stay consistent throughout 50 minutes. And the weird thing about Barrio is that I don't even think he has good cardio, if I'm being completely honest. I think he has sustainable cardio in a way that like Ian Heinish does. Berrio's never going to wow you or really overpower you with his volume, but by the time the third round comes around, if you yourself have bad cardio, then his will be better. It's just, it's one of those weird kind of, I don't know if I trust it all the way yet. Like if Berrio went out there and fought, I know he's at the top of the card, but let's even say Derek Brunson, a middleweight who can put on a good pace and has great wrestling, then I think Berrio would get tired in like the second round. I really don't think against the top level guys, he'll be able to implement his very, I guess, physical strength kind of game, because that's the first thing that steps out when you do watch Barrio's fights. When he gets into that clinch, he must just be insanely physically strong because he's very positionally dominant. And maybe that's not the most exciting thing to say about a guy, but... He's great at holding people up against the cage. And when he moves forward, he does have sort of a Marvin Vittori-ish 
like I move forward while I strike fashion to the way he does it. But the problem is that Barrio leaves himself open. Even Christoph Jaco, and I know that fight was close, Jaco had a lot of success when he was able to keep it at range, and when he was able to sort of bite out the attempts in the takedowns from Barrio. All he had to do was feint the jab, feint a kick, it would bring Barrio's hands down a lot of the times, and then Jaco would be able to score up top. The difference is that Jaco doesn't really have that one-punch knockout power that a guy like Lunjimbula will have in this fight. The only issue is that I don't really think Lujimbula is going to be able to land that big shot against Barrio. I personally don't. Barrio is the type of fighter who puts his head directly in your chest and doesn't really do much else. And I know that might sound frustrating, but that's how you beat a guy like Dolce Lujimbula. Dolce is going to get tired if you make him work. And Macante Barrio has that style that just makes you work throughout a fight. So stylistically, it will be interesting because you know Lujimbula, like he's knocked out heavyweights. Of course, he can knock out a middleweight. I just think Barrio's style is going to be one of those tricky ones for a guy like Lujimbula to overcome. For Lunjambula, you look at it in the UFC, he knocks out Daquan Townsend, he loses to Magomed Ankalaev, the crazy kick, and then he beats Marcus Perez. Before that, again, he was a double champ over with EFC. For Marc-Andre Barrio, double champ with TKO at middleweight and light heavyweight, so the two lower weight classes, if you will, than where Lunjambula was competing. You know what I mean. Two, two, so on and so forth. I guess one's the same. But yeah, in a fight like this, you have a look at the odds. Lunjambula opened a plus 105 underdog. He's a plus 119 right now. For Barrio, open a minus 125. He's a minus 145. And if you have a look at the topology votes, it's a surprise to us. It is to you. 472 total votes. 65% Lunjambula. 60% by decision. 35% by knockout. 5% of those people thinking he's going to submit Barrio. For the 35% that have Barrio... Uh, 52% by decision, 42% by knockout. So, again, is it the over-under? I feel like if there's an over-under 1.5, I think we're going to go over that. And then it's a really tricky pick after that because is Lunjambula able to win the first, somewhat eke out the second, and then bank the third, like kind of take time off and really kind of have to try and save himself? Or is Betty O going to be able to win that second, win that third, or... I guess the other option is like Alessio Di Chirico last weekend when he was taking on Abdurazak Al-Hassan. Are we going to edge our face into a knee and get knocked out? So here's the thing about Lujabula. Like, even if you just play like rec league basketball or something on the weekends there's a difference between like getting up shots when you first get there and then getting up shots in the fourth quarter you know your arms get tired they burn out the thing about barrio is that when he clinches lunjambula in the clinch he's always going to be wearing on those arms of lunjambula and that's the real key if you make dolce work he's going to become less dangerous as a result of it and that really is barrio's gay game i like barrio quite a bit in this fight when i have a look at this one in terms of dolce lunjambula you look at when he took on Magomed Ankalaev, he went, what, 0 for 2 on takedown attempts. Ankalaev has good hips. He has good defense in terms of his takedowns. He went 1 of 2 against Marcus Perez, but he was able to hold him down. He was able to earn a lot of control time. And if you look just statistically at Marcus Perez's line from that fight in that third round, he has a ton of control time. But the majority of it is pushing Lunjambula up against the cage. It's not that he took him down. It's not that he was on top of him. And when Lunjambula took on Daquan Townsend, he went four of six in his takedown attempts. Daquan Townsend had a rough go in the UFC against Bavon Lewis, against Disco Todorovic, against yeah. Usada. It was just a bad go. So, yeah, I know he lost his brother when he was in the UFC. That was kind of sad. But when I look at this one... I like that early storm from Dolce Lindjambula. Again, I do like Makar Gabetio. I like him with that staying power that he has. I mean, he hasn't been finished in the UFC, albeit he did lose those three fights. 
But I like Linjambula at the start with that judo background, with that power. The one sneaky thing that's going to play dividends, I think, in this fight, and you would have heard it in his last fight, was Dewey Cooper says, we want you striking on the inside. We don't want you on the outside against a guy like Perez. And when he's on the inside, he throws winging wild shots. But when it's early and when he's fresh... He definitely has that pop to his shot. So I like Lunjambula in this fight. Marc-Andre Barriot is a hard guy to get out of there. And this is a really tricky fight because it's going to be one or the other. But I like Congo's own Dolce Lunjambula here. Matt, we're in disagreement. You're going, you're going with our countryman here in Marc-Andre Barriot. I can't fault you for that. A one. Canadian has not won in a long time, though. <laughs> so let's hope he can change that trend. Cross our fingers, I guess. But Matt, we're split on the pick. I absolutely love this fight, though. This one should definitely deliver. It should be fireworks or... Barrio makes it boring, so it's one of those two. Uh, we got a great card coming up, and our marquee in this weight division, you have Derek Brunson taking on Darren Till. Should be a great one. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, and as we always say, let's, let's get, get into, into it. it. Big time fight coming up this weekend at a catchweight that is reported at 150 pounds. We have Canada's own Air Jordan, Charles Jordan, representing Belay, Quebec, Canada. And he's taking on a short notice replacement in Julian Rosa. Originally, this fight was supposed to be Jordan and Lerone Murphy. And I was like so excited for that fight. But unfortunately, after booking and rebooking, the fight fell out. And you have Julian Rosa taking this one on short notice. And for Rosa, this is one of the three timers clubs. It's insane to say that, and it's also insane the run that Julian Arosa was able to go on. He beat AJ Bryant about a year and a half ago to get back into the UFC. He takes on Sean Woodson. He's a big underdog. He gets outboxed in the first round. Then he starts to come back, submits him. Then he takes on Nate Landwehr. He's the underdog. Knocks him out. Then he takes on Sung Woo Choi about two months and five days ago and gets knocked out very very quickly and now he's coming back a little bit early you hate to see it but he's a guy that's kind of switched things up throughout his career he's training out of extreme couture uh in the states i almost said canada for Charles Jourdain. Such an interesting case because it's been a weird run so far in the UFC. His last five, he's 2-2 two and two with a draw where he took on Joshua Kulibau. It depends on how he scored that fight. I've watched it four or five times since. I've scored it for either guy. I think the last time I watched it, I had it for Kulibau, if I'm being completely honest. But his last fight, he knocks out Marcelo Rojo in this year's maybe fight of the year. And with Charles Jourdain, I think of the song Monster by Kanye West, and I'll go out there because people like my rap connections. Matter who you go and get, ain't nobody cold as this. Do the rap and the track, triple-double, no assist. With Charles Jodin, he can go out there and hang with some of the best fighters, but he kind of f***s around, and when he f***s around... He gets hit and he gives up time, and that's not good when you're watching Charles Jordan fights. It's an easy comp. Charles Jordan is the featherweight version of Daniel Rodriguez. I don't know why we overcomplicate things, because they fight in a very, very similar manner. Both guys, southpaw dominant boxers, who use their power left hands, go to the body a lot with their left kicks, have really good hits for takedown defense. It sounds exactly like Dana Rodriguez, and that's pretty much the fighter that Charles Jordan is. Now, he's a really frustrating fighter, like you said, because he can kind of give up time, and then it's almost like midway through the second round, it's like, oh, I've been losing the last eight minutes of this fight. I've really got to make up the difference now. Remember when Isaiah Thomas was the king of the fourth for the Boston Celtics, and he was scoring like 16 points in the fourth quarter alone? It's kind of reminiscent of that. Exactly. It's like, okay, he's only 5'9", he can't be that good at basketball, but when it really matters, he would show up. When Charles Jordan really needs to go 
go out there and put it on his opponent, he can. And he is a fighter who tends to get stronger as the fight goes on. And that's why this fight's going to be so fun. Because Julian Arosa has made a career off. And I hate, this is going to sound very disrespectful. He's kind of a punching bag for about six minutes. And then he kind of overtakes his opponent. And he is inevitable. He's kind of like Thanos. It's just going to happen. Julian Rose is one of those fighters who, if you can't get him out of there in that first seven or eight minutes, he is a handful by the time the end of the second and the third round come around because he's such a volume-heavy fighter, and it really doesn't matter how much damage he's taken throughout the fight. He's been in fights, even that Sean Woodson fight. Like, he is getting his ears boxed in by Sean Woodson on the outside. Can't really get anything done. But once the fatigue starts to set in for Woodson, and when Woodson's footwork starts to slow down, even a hair, that's when Arosa can start crowding that distance and making an ugly fight. The only problem is that Julian Rosa gets stronger in the third round, is hittable up until that point. Charles Jouldet, I think, is going to be landing a lot of power shots in this fight. And the thing about Arosa is that if you do beat him, normally it is by knockout. And I do worry about Julian Arosa's durability in this fight against a guy like Charles Jouldet. Because what Jouldet's two best strengths, let's even open it up to three. He's got a great left overhand, kind of left straight. He's got a really good right uppercut where he'll sometimes lead in like he's Kelvin Gaslam. He's got a great left kick to the body. Julian Arosa's body is wide open in his fights. He holds his hands very high, and he's very tall for the weight class, and that's a technique I think is going to be open constantly for Charles Jordan. And if Julian Arosa is getting hit to the body a lot early on, if he does start to tire in that third round, I think we're going to see another onslaught by Charles Jordan in the third round, very similar to what we saw in the Rojo fight. To me, for Julian Arosa, I don't know if he's such a late starter as you're going to say, because he kind of reminds me of like a mid-2000s, mid-to-late 2000s Mike Commissaric. Now, Leafs fans might not like that, but you you look at the stat line for Commissaric at the end of the year. 82 games played, 3 assists, 20 minutes a game, and you're like, what What does he even do? Well, he's in your face, and he's pushing you around, and for Julian Rosa, he's constantly in your face. He walks guys down. Now, sometimes that's to his benefit, flying knee knockout of Nate Landwehr early on, the A.J. Bryant knockout. He does have a lot of great wins and great finishes. He also has a loss with Cage Warriors against Patty Pimble, who's also on this card. But for Julian Rosa, he can do things like that, or... He gets caught by big power shots. He might not have the most durable chin. You can see that by the bevy of knockout losses that Six he has times. in his career. And he's coming back really quick from that Sung Woo Choi fight to this fight. He was a victim of the Fight Night Picks interview curse because he was on the channel before that fight. Matt, the odds on this one, Jordan opened a minus 170 favorite. He's a minus 188 or thereabouts on best fight odds. For Julian Rosa, open a plus 140s, plus 153. If we have a look at the votes on Topology, I hazard a guess that they're not going to be that close, no. and they're not. They're 335 total votes, 79% Jordan, 70% by knockout for the 21% that have a Rosa, 54% by decision, 14% uh, by submission, 27% by knockout. It's tough for me. I mean, again, I said it at the start. For Jordan, don't take big moments of the fight or long periods of time off because he will. He'll get backed up. He does that thing where he starts moving his hands around like he's acting all defensive, but he's not doing anything. Those are the moments where Julian Arosa can definitely capitalize. And I think if Arosa is going to win this fight, he's going to win a decision. That shouldn't surprise Jordan fans because his losses are all by decision. And then he has that draw against Koulibau where he turned it on at moments when he needed to, but it was too little too late. And Koulibau was great in that fight. Don't get me wrong. So I think if Arosa is going to win, it's going to be by decision because Jordan has those lapses. 
but I still like Jourdain in this fight. Again, I like that body kick. I like it that he can go to the leg, to the body, to the head, but mainly to the body. And I like those boxing combinations in tight. If you like Iga Chikadze's work that he did against Edson Barboza this past weekend, I think you're going to like Jourdain against Arosa, unless Arosa is able to just grind out a decision like he has a tendency to do. He's been stopped six times by TKO, and that's a lot of times to be finished in the world of MMA. And like you said, it's only been two months since his last loss, and that was a tough knockout loss. It's not like it was a TKO where the ref kind of saved him. Like, he gets dropped and pounded out on the ground. Charles Jourdain, again, has great cardio, and that really is the thing that's gonna I'm going to keep on hammering home. If Jourdain can at least withstand whatever Flurry Rosa has early on in the fight and land those big power shots, I do like Jourdain quite a bit in this fight, and I do like his ability to go to the body like you had said. I'd even say Jourdain by stoppage, if I'm being completely honest, because Arosa has been susceptible to the shots that Jourdain happens to be very, very strong with. But I do think this could be a phenomenal fight for as long as it lasts. Can't wait for both of us going with Canada's own, Belay Quebec's own, Charles Jourdain to get the win. Can't wait for this fight. If you like Julian Arosa, if you like Charles Jourdain, let us know down below in the comments section who you have. And make sure you don't miss the marquee up at the top at middleweight Brunson taking on Till. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. And as we always say, let's get into it. Really interesting fight coming up this weekend. This one in the Bantamweight division. We have Wales' own Jack Shore representing, well, Shore Martial Arts. And he has for the longest time. Coming out of Wales, and it's Abertillery Wales to be exact. He's going to be taking on a short notice replacement. The Ukrainian-Armenian Lyudvik Shalinian. And this is a guy that if you followed along with some of the major stars in the sport and their Instagram game, you probably seen Lyudvik for a very long time time you just didn't realize it and he's featured with Melzik Bogdazarian, Edmund Shabazian, the list goes on and on and he was almost the breakout star on the Ultimate Fighter season 29. To me it felt like Andre Petrovsky was supposed to win at middleweight and Lyudvik Shalinian was supposed to win at 135 pounds after going back and watching everything. He also has that connection because he's represented by Dominance MMA so you're going to see Ali Abdelaziz, hence why he gets this shot uh, in short notice, in short succession, against such a big star in the making in Jack Shore. Originally, he was supposed to take on Syed Nurmagomedov. That fight fell out. He was supposed to take on another short notice replacement in Zviad Lavishvili. That fight fell out. So ultimately, he gets Ludwig Shalinian. And this is a guy that if you've watched him fight... He's one of the better wrestlers coming into MMA. He was on the Ukrainian national team. He was on the Ukrainian MMA amateur team. Like, he has such a bevy of experience coming into this fight. And if you look at it, experience against good fighters and wins against good fighters. I mean, you look at his one loss. It was against Sidmar Anadio back at Bellator. I want to say it was 209. He loses that one by decision. Onodio was a former champion in CFFC a long time ago. He'd taken on really big names. Like, that was one of those tests that you just have to go through. Other than that, he took on Ossetrov, uh, that ended up taking on, who was it, Sergei Morozov with AC, or sorry, M1 Global. So that's another big name. That was a draw on his record. Then you look at the wins. Vince Cachero by split decision. David Eduardo, 0-0, that was a year and 10 months ago. Yuma Horiuchi, that was a big win with lights out. And then ultimately, he's on the Ultimate Fighter. He loses to Ricky Tercios in a great fight, but ultimately, 
well, the Ultimate Fighter winner, Ricky Tertius. He's pretty good. Put that guy. respect He's... on his name, Tony Ferguson 2.0. But the point of it was, in that fight, Shalinian just kind of got beat to the punch. And the thing with Ricky Tertius, and if you watched last weekend's show, Brady Heistan was great in that one. Similar matchup, wrestler versus well-rounded guy. And Ricky Tertius is just busy throughout. And Ludwig Shalinian just kind of walks him down and gets hit a ton. And that's a big worry for him moving forward. In a fight like this against Jack Shore, maybe you don't have to worry about it because I think their skill sets really complement each other. That's what makes this fight so much fun. My only issue with this fight is this is one of those too fast, too much, too soon scenarios. Because Shalinian is a good fighter and I do think he can go on to have a very, very successful UFC career. Why is he fighting Jack Shore in his well, first fight, though? This reminds me, and it's a shame, and I it, don't mean to compare the similarities because there's the Armenian connections, but Armin Zarukian, when he draws, who is it, Islam Makachev in gonna, his debut? I was going to say Max Griffin, Ramiz Bahimai. Because that one that, too. that's one of those scenarios where it's not like Bahimai's bad, and I'm sure he's going to go on to have much more wins than just the win over Sash Palatnikov his last time out. But it's just like, you're not doing that guy any favors by giving him Jack Shore in his UFC debut, because what is Jack Shore phenomenal at? Well, he's probably one of the best wrestlers to come from Europe in a very long time. And his jiu-jitsu and his ground game is so dynamic and so diverse on the mat. He's not somebody like uh, Damian Maya. And I know I always bring up this example of a grappler who... I. <laughs> Not really can only do one thing. I guess just a one-note grappler, if you will. Damian Maya is a back-taking specialist. With Jack Shore, he can ground and pound you from on top. He can take your back immediately. He just throws a lot of different looks at guys on the mat. And another fighter who he kind of does remind me of a little bit is Marab Duvalshvili. Now, Marab is much more wrestling-heavy, I would say. He chains his takedowns a little bit better than Jack Shore does. Whereas Jack Shore, I think, in the grappling and pure jiu-jitsu is a little bit more skilled than Marab. But they do have some similarities with their styles. And the thing about Shalinian is... He he himself is a good chain wrestler. He is a very unique fighter because when I first looked, oh, coming from the Ukraine, I wonder what he's good at. Well, Ukrainians... It's just Ukraine. Ukraine it's not the Ukraine. ...are more known for their boxing. You think of guys like Oleksandr Yusik. You think of even fighters like Marina Moroz. I know... Oh, she, oh, he's in pictures with Yusik over on the Instagrams. But the problem is, is that he doesn't really have that boxing style to set up a lot of his takedowns. Like you said, he will kind of walk into shots sometimes. And I know I bring up Marvin Vittori a lot as this example, but Marvin Vittori is kind of my gold standard for striking your way into the clinch. We don't often see Marvin Vittori going for takedowns and then getting flying need by, like, Yoel Romero. Like, Chris Weidman struggles sometimes with takedown attempts and when to take them. But uh, I don't think Shalinian's going to be that type of fighter. I do think he's going to have some success in this fight. And we might even see him get takedowns on Jack Shore. My issue is that even in top position, I don't think he's safe against a guy like Jack Shore. And if Shore is able to get on top of Shalinian, I don't think Shalinian has the skills off of his back to get out from underneath a guy like Jack Shore. I think this is such a great fight. Again, it's like 1A, 1B, and we get fights like this all the time where, hey, there's a great opportunity for the prospect. Think like Trevin Jones when he took on... Uh, uh, who was it? Timor Valiev. Think about Trevin Jones' last fight where he didn't look good at all on short McKinney. notice. Opponent gets an opportunity. Terrence McKinney against Matt Frivola. The list goes on where we've seen these guys on incredibly short notice. Maybe they, you thought that they needed an extra fight here or there. Maybe the level of competition wasn't all that great. For Shalinian, well, it was over on the Ultimate Fighter. And if you go through it, I mean, he had a great showing over there. You lose to the eventual champion in the semis, that's fine. But again, for Jack Shore, you look at it, the five-on-in, former Cage Warriors champ, beats Mikey Ekendeo, beats Scott Malone, beats Nolene Hernandez, didn't have a good run in the UFC, no. beats Aaron Phillips, didn't have a good first round or second run. Yeah. Beats Hunter Azure by split, and that's the important one. If you like Shalinian, you're going to pick up bits and pieces where... 
Hunter Azure is a great MMA wrestler, and that was a good showing where maybe you can pick up a couple of things on incredibly short notice that you can use against Jack Shore. Again, I, I really do like this one, but sure, a big favorite. Open to minus 285. He's minus 324 right now. Ludwig Shalinian open to plus 225. He's at plus 254 right now. Over on Topology, 335 total votes, so it's a small sample size, but 95% was sure. 53% having to win by submission for the 5% that have Shalinian. 72% by decision. I think we're probably going to go to a decision in this one, and I think Jack Shore is going to get it. Maybe he gets it by submission, but I, I think the scrambles are going to be great in this one. And if Shalinian wins out, it wouldn't be a huge shock surprise just based on the way that those odds are. But I do like Shore here. Yeah, I do think Shalinian is going to struggle in that bottom position. That's really going to be the key of this fight. When Jack Shore gets on top of guys, he is so good at, I get into full mount, I ground a pound, you give me your back, and then I choke you out. It's pretty much his specialty. And again, he is somebody who can play that sort of boring game, if you will. He will waste minutes trying to set up kind of the perfect submission, but I still like Jack Shore in this. With Shalinian, again, he could go on to have a very successful career after this fight. I still think the UFC is doing him any favors by giving him such a tough guy in Jack Shore in his UFC debut. Matt? absolutely love this fight both of us going with wales own jack shore to get the win let us know down below in the comment section who you have in this fight i'm sure there's a lot of ludwig shalinian fans i want to hear from you how do you think he's going to get it done in this one because he has those wrestling chops in his back pocket for sure and you're not going to want to miss the rest of the videos for this card up at the top tom aspinall taking on one really tough out in sergey spivak as we know and in the main event Holy smokes, a great one. Derek Brunson, Darren Till, finally gonna happen. Keep locked in with Fight Night Picks, as we always say. Let's get into it. I would classify this fight as an interesting one because we have one of multiple Liverpudlians on the card in Meatball, Molly McCann, looking to right the ship, coming off of two straight losses, taking on South Korea's own Firefish, Jiyeon Kim, who's been training at Syndicate MMA. A big difference for her, and she's been there for a time or two and also involved in the Instagram stories or vice versa of Marcelo Rojo. So I thought that was kind of a weird combination of people. But it is a combination nonetheless and a neat one. And for Jiyun Kim, I'll be totally honest with everybody out there. And I said this in the last video that we did on Jiyun Kim before she fought Alexa Grasso. I have no sweet clue what we're going to get out of her fight over fight. Because her volume's not the best, but she's one of the most well-rounded people in terms of having a background in MMA. I'm going to read you the credentials, and then we're going to try and pick through this fight. Because I see it as being very close, and if I'm not mistaken, the odds are very close for this one too. Jiyun Kim is a black belt in Wushu. She's a black belt in Hapkido. She's a former Deep Jewels champion. She's a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu purple belt. She's 11-2-1 in amateur kickboxing. She's 6-2 in amateur boxing. She's 3-0 in amateur MMA. She's 9-3-2 in professional MMA. She's got one of those backgrounds where you're like, man... This is a person that's a force to be reckoned with. When she came into the UFC, I thought that was going to be the scoop. And then, if you don't know anything about Jiyun Kim and you just look at the picture, the graphic that's next to us, you might see the fact that she's three inches taller than McCann. She has a 10-inch reach advantage over McCann. But she has those advantages over most of the fighters that she takes on, and she never really uses them because she does have a nice jab when she pumps it out there, but she's such a counter-striker that her boxing's so good, she uses it, and it's almost to her detriment. I mean, her last fight, Alexa Grasso's a good fighter, but Gion Kim was so much bigger than Alexa Grasso. Like, we were talking before he came on. J.J. Aldrich, Vanessa Demopoulos look cartoonish, the difference in size. Gion Kim versus Alexa Grasso, huge difference in terms of size. 
the biggest thing that really kind of forced Kim's hand was the fact that she doesn't throw kicks ever. She hardly ever throws kicks. She's thrown kicks. The last time she did was when she lost to Antonina Shevchenko where she threw some kicks and she had some success. But normally it's below 10% of her total strikes are kicks. It's more around 4 or 5%. And in the fight against Alexa Grasso, Matt, I made a point of writing it down. She threw three kicks against a primary boxer. Just three. Alexa Grasso she, kicks quite a bit, though. But she's more known as a boxer. She lost that fight. All three judges had a 30-27 for Grasso. A little bit more volume in every single round. Kim is one of the most frustrating fighters out there because I think she's a good fighter. It's just she doesn't really show it every time. That's where we differ. I gotta be honest. I don't think Ji-Yun Kim is a UFC caliber fighter. And you just have to look at her wins and her losses in the UFC to tell you the whole story. She beat Nadia Kasim. I don't care. She beat Justine Kish when she was 42 years old. And that was after she pooped herself against, uh, Boy, nah, what's her name? Like, easy, it's just Hot take, then, Tony, that's enough. And Melinda Fabian's one of the worst fighters to ever walk into a UFC octagon. And I don't feel bad for saying that whatsoever. I know I'm talking a lot of crap right now about Ji-Yun Kim's level of competition. But it's true. Her wins are not impressive whatsoever, but her losses are to half-decent fighters, and that is the problem. Like, Alexa Grasso is a good striker, and she is a dynamic fighter on the outside, and the weird thing about Ji Hyun Kim is, I think she moves way too much on the feet. I know that's a weird thing to say, and a lot of the times, we like to praise fighters for using their footwork, because footwork can kind of be used as two different things. Footwork can be used offensively, like Max Holloway, where you're always moving forward, pressure your opponent, or it can be used defensively, like Yair Rodriguez, for instance, where he's constantly switching stances, moving forwards and backwards. I don't know why I said Yair, because he hasn't fought in a while, but I guess the example still stands. With Ji Hyun Kim... It's like she's on skate. She moves around so much on the feet, but she doesn't ever plant and throw. And that really is the weird thing about Kim. We bring up all of her backgrounds and karate, taekwondo and whatnot. You'd think she would kick at some Not point. Not one of her backgrounds. Wushu, Hapkido, BJJ, kickboxing, boxing, MMA. Sorry, you, you went think, with taekwondo I, and karate. You would think with a kickboxing background, she would at least implement some of that into her game. But that is the thing that is apparent. She does not kick whatsoever. And it is odd because most fighters who do use the footwork really well they're trying to set you up to walk into big strikes now yes boxers do this but we see this a lot from kickboxers and the weird thing about Jiyun Kim she doesn't use the clinch as effectively as you'd really like she can get to it don't get me wrong but her takedowns are never I get the takedown then I'm getting a lot of top control from it it's a lot of takedown then we scramble it's never a takedown into a dominant position and that does worry me because for Molly McCann, everyone's going to bring up the boxing and how, oh, she's a boxer. That's what she does in MMA. I really think Molly McCann's more of a wrestler first in MMA. When I think of Molly McCann, she does shoot a lot of double legs throughout her fights. And it's weird because sometimes it can be a strength of hers. Uh, go back to the Priscilla Cachuera fight. She wrestles very well in that one. But it makes her tired when she does it because it's not her natural background. That's her only fight where she had any success in wrestling. In the other one, she has a 29% take down accuracy in the UFC, 28% takedown defense. The Cachuera fight, she gets what? I guess Belbizia. She gets five takedowns in that one. She gets two against I mean? Lipsky. She's... She gets two against Cachuera. That's a lot more than She just gets two. taken down five times against Tyler Santos. She gets taken down seven times against Lara Procopio. And again, you look at it from McCann. She was what, 17 and 0 as an amateur boxer coming into MMA. She has a positive strike differential. Kim has a negative strike differential. And listen, this is a Phil Swift special because if you look Look at the numbers these two take a lot of damage they also give a lot of damage and really most of their fights go to decision 
I have a hard time with this one because for McCann, two fights skid against decent fighters. I actually think Laura Procopio is a pretty good fighter. I know she didn't win her last time out, and I know she didn't beat Carol Hosa, but that was a close fight up a weight class on short notice. And I think for McCann in that one, yeah, that's tricky. Yeah, that's tough. I think Tyler Santos is a really good fighter. For Kim, she was supposed to come back in May of this year and take on Pollyanna Botelio. That fight fell out. This fight was booked for August. Then it was moved again. Of course, this card was supposed to happen in England. It would have been a hometown game for McCann. And you talk about fighters from Liverpool. She's very close with Patty Pimblett, who's also on this one. So I have a really hard time with this fight because in my mind's eye, I think Jihyun Kim is a complete fighter. I just don't see it very often. And for Molly McCann, I too, I think, okay... She can wrestle, but sometimes she's one of those fighters that gets her hands wrapped around for the double leg, and then she gets stuck. And then when you get stuck, you burn clock, you burn your arms, and then you give the opportunity for a fighter like Kim to have a lot of success. So when I have a look at the odds for this one, Matt, Kim is coming in as a slight favorite. She opened a minus 190. She's minus 117 right now. That line corrected itself really early on. For Molly McCann, she opened a plus 165. She's minus 105 right now. McCann, the second biggest mover and shaker on the card at a 42% clip. If we have a look at topology votes, I haven't looked at them. You haven't looked at them. They're going to be a surprise. 488 total votes. 59% Kim, 93% by decision. 41% that I'm McCann, 91% by decision. Yeah. Probably going to hit the over two and a half rounds. Probably going to hit fight goes to decision. And I bet you those odds are somewhere around a minus 200. Either or, like 200, 250, be 200. Way more than minus 200. 300. Like they, this fight to go to decision is, is going to be heavily weighted. I, that would be pretty much all I go with because I see this one as a 50-50. Who are you picking here? How many kickboxing titles does BM Malecki have on a world stage? Uh, Muay Thai titles. Sorry, how Plenty. many? Like Plenty. 19? Plenty. This is the problem with Jian Kim. A lot of her accolades are fluff, I think. There, I said it. She doesn't fight like a fighter who has the sum of the parts that she has. Like, she doesn't have that crazy jiu-jitsu background that it would claim that she does. I think she's going to struggle in this fight. I really do. She's a fighter who struggles when people do get on the inside of her range. And that's really all Molly McCann's going to be able to do in this fight. Jia Kim has the physical assets that should be able to win her this fight. But I just don't think she has the skills to back it up. I think Molly McCann's going to be able to get on the inside, have a little bit of success with her boxing. And like you said, yes, she does get stuck on a lot of those takedown attempts, but I don't think Gian Kim's going to be pulling a guillotine like she's Brian Ortega up against the cage. And the thing is that Molly McCann is at least going to be burning minutes and winning those moments throughout the fight. It's not a great pick, but I do think Molly McCann's going to be able to win this one by decision. Grasso was able to take Kim down. Nadia Kasem, Kasem was able to take her down. Antonia Shevchenko was able to take her down. Uh, she did finish poor Nadia, and Nadia's UFC run was not very good, Jeez. so there is that. I see it as being a really close fight. I'm going to edge Molly McCann ever so slightly. I know there's a lot of people in the comment section that are going to point to the, the height, the reach advantage. And maybe when I see these two face off on Friday, I'll have a different view of this one. Uh, listener and viewer note, this card's early on Saturday. Uh, I checked it on the UFC website. It starts at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. That's when the prelims start. So I guess set your watch. If you're on the West Coast, I mean, have your breakfast with this one. But uh, yeah, I'm ever so slightly going with Molly McCann. And it's not one of the more confident picks on this card. So both of us going with England's McCann. Let us know down below in the comments section who you have. Because it is very much a 50-50 type of affair. We got a lot of great fights on this card. I'm looking forward to... Jonathan Martinez, Marcelo Rojo. I'm really looking forward to our main event, Derek Brunson taking on Darren Till. Keep it locked in with Fight Name Picks, as we always say. Let's get into it.
It's finally time for Patty the Batty Pimblet to make his UFC debut. This has been long-awaited former Cage Warriors featherweight champ coming up here at 155 pounds, finally getting the opportunity against the Italian Stallion out of Brazil, Luigi Vendramini. Now, the last time Luigi made his return to the octagon, I say that because he had a lot of time off between fights, he took on a really tough out in, well, I guess it was Eliseo Zaleski Dos Santos. That was his debut. Two years, 10 months ago. Has a competitive first round, takes Zaleski's back at one point, then gets knocked out, but that was up a weight class. Then he tears his ACL, and then he tears it again, and he gets surgery, comes out, takes on Yesen Ayari, beats the brakes off of him. Then he takes another fight against Farah ZM. That one was a competitive one. ZM's just able to use that superior kickboxing in the first round. The second round so long. does not let Vendramini on the inside in the first and the second. Wins him handily. And then what does Vendramini do? Well, he listens to Mark Montoya to Factory X. He bridges that gap. He blitzes. He rocks ZM a couple of different times in the round. He gets up on top. He's able to land great shots. And for me, I scored the fight as a draw. 10-9 ZM, 10-9 ZM, 10-8. I had a 28-28. Ultimately, ZM ends up getting the win in that one. Regardless of how you saw the fight, there was a huge shift of the tide at the end. But for Luigi Ventramini, he's taken on such a tough test in Paddy Pimlet. This is a guy whose hands have kind of developed as his career has gone on. He's been a great no-gi grappler, and he's been known as such over with Cage Warriors and the little promotions that he's had a fight or two with. But out of his overall 16 wins, 12 of them by finish, 8 of them by submission, very dominant as soon as the fight hits the mat. If you want to see the biggest highlight, I think you're going to find an MMA grappling. Go back and watch Paddy's fight in 2018 against Alexis Savitas the flying triangle like it's absolutely insane but the weird thing for patty pimblett and i know there's so many patty fans out there and you give him the support down below in the comments section we want to hear from you for sure we're members of the commonwealth right matt we are but if you look at it for patty pimblett 14 fights from 2012 to 2016 only four fights from 2017 to 2021 he's three and two in the five on in he was heavily favored in his last two decky dalton took the fight on short notice that was a year and four months ago that was that weird fight card where the ufc and cage Warriors were supposed to be around the same time and then you ended up with darren stewart and bartosz fabinski headlining thought. but patty pimblett had a lot of a long time off between his loss to Sorenbach. That was a hometown fight in Liverpool. Then he took on Dalton, the short-notice fighter. He gets the win there. He takes on David Martinez, and he was a huge favorite in and around like a minus 600. He's able to set things up on the feet, rock Martinez, get it to the mat, finish him there. Paddy Pimblett, one of the more exciting prospects coming out of England, coming out of the United Kingdom. And listen, not that United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland are the same, but in terms of Western Europe... A lot of people were likening Pimblet as like the second coming of McGregor in terms of hype. And finally, we get to see him here. And Paddy Pimblet has that it factor. There's not a lot of unranked fighters who just come into the UFC and all of a sudden have this much hype surrounding their debut. It's cool to have a haircut like this if Pimblet has it. And his walkout song, the Where's Your Head At like remix thing. Heads will it's, roll. It, heads will roll. It's great. The other thing I want to say, just quick, it's a tire pump for Fight Night Picks. When we started in 2018, we covered, as Fight Night Picks, I was there at UFC Moncton. Throw up the picture right now. Patty the Batty Pimblet, like six inches away from me. That's aggressive, but he was there with Chris Fishgold, fellow teammate and former Cage Warriors champ. And at that time, people wanted to see him in the UFC. 
but ultimately it took him a little bit more time. He is a huge prospect. And Patty Pimblett also, people forget, he declined his first opportunity to come to the UFC. This is a massive storyline years ago because the UFC gave him the opportunity before the Soren back fight. And they were like, hey, you can come over now. And he said, no, I'm going to develop my star even more outside of the UFC. And then I'll come over once I'm kind of near the top. Now, Yuri Prohoshka did that and it worked out great. He's what, one fight away from a title shot, if not fighting for the title next? For Patty Pimblett, he didn't win that fight against Bach, but that was one of the most hyped up Cage Warriors events ever, I would say. They were doing like HBO style commercials for that. It was a great lead up to it. And this is the thing you have to know. I know Bach is now with uh, Bellator and he didn't get signed to the UFC. He is legit. He is a UFC caliber fighter or a UFC caliber prospect. So a lot of people might look at him or him not going into the UFC as like a mark against him. I don't think that should be the case whatsoever. He's a very, very talented fighter. I was like, Bellator is paying? Let's take it. Because he was a guy... Even when they marketed that fight against Pimblet, it was like Soren Bach. He's I'm working an insurance job. And I also dress like a Viking in my spare time. This is a weird fight for Patty Pimblet, though, because this fight, and this is gonna be a weird comparison, this fight kind of reminds me of when Mark Hunt fought Junior Dos Santos. Where Junior Dos Santos, yes, boxes a lot, and he is a primary striker, but he has a black belt in jiu-jitsu. He can take the fight to the ground. Whereas Mark Hunt, he only strikes, and he pretty much has no ground game, if we're being completely honest. So you would think, okay, Junior Dos Santos could take him down, could do, you know, make this an MMA fight, but instead he chose to just strike with Mark Hunt. This is the bizarro version of that fight, because I think Luigi Ventramini is kind of like Junior Santos in this fight, where he's the more well-rounded fighter than Paddy Pimblett. I do think he has better volume on the feet. I do think he has a slight wrestling edge, although that could be disputed. Listen, just because I said it doesn't mean it's true, but I do look at Ventramini as the slightly more well-rounded fighter. The issue is that Ventramini's natural talent is to take you down, try to grapple with you, and that does play right into the strengths of Paddy Pimblett. And that's the big, I guess, question I have coming into this fight is, how is Ventramini going to decide to fight? Because if he tries to fight this as a volume striker and uses his wrestling defensively against Paddy Pimblett, I do think he could win a decision in this fight. If he shoots for one takedown on Paddy Pimblett, though, and I'm being very serious, he's an immediate threat to get submitted. Paddy Pimblett has... We talk about guys like Brian Kelleher who have defensive submissions. Paddy Pimblett not only will go for the guillotine, but he'll use that as a way to sweep and get in top position on you. He's a very smart grappler who not only uses his submissions for submissions, he can use submissions as a way to pass guard, as a way to sweep. That's how tricky Paddy Pimblett is on the mat. And like you've mentioned, his striking is constantly improving. And I guess that will be question 1B to this fight. Paddy Pimblett hasn't been active lately, but he is only 26 years old. This isn't a guy like Kevin Lee, who was basically a top-level pro from the time he was 24 on, to where, oh, he's 28, but he's really like 41 in MMA years. 26. I, but, no, no, no. What I mean is that I Kevin Lee mean. physically is much older than his age would suggest. With Paddy Pimblett... I'm assuming he's just been training in these last few years off. And hey, a lot of fighters haven't been consistent lately. Like, Leon Edwards had to take a very long time off just because of where he was in the world and the situation surrounding our global pandemic throughout the last year and a half. All of this is to say that I do think Paddy Pimblett is going to be the slightly superior grappler in this fight. And I do think that's what this fight's going to come down to. Well, if I can mansplain for a second, because I feel like it could have got lost in translation. The activity that you were talking about, the fact that Pimblett fought 14 times... In four years, 2012 to 2016, he's only fought four times from 17 to 21. Now, his last fight was four months ago. Before that, a year and four months ago, I guess, I should say. For Vendramini, he had the ACL injuries, and then he came back and he kicked Yesenayari's head off as 
well, off his body. And then he loses that one to Farazim. Now, one of the judges did score at 28-28. The other two are 29-28. So he does ultimately lose that one. Benjamini comes in. He opened a plus 154 underdog or thereabouts on best fight odds. He's a plus 116 right now for Pimblet. Open a minus 184. He's a minus 141. If we have a look over on Topology, the votes... Not really close. Uh, so far, you have 538 total votes, 86% Pimblet, 33% by decision, 53% by submission. For the 14% that have Vendramini, 50% by decision, 38% by knockout. With me, Vendramini has a Muay Thai background, and he's good when he strikes. Now, he struggled against a much longer rangier Farazim that had that K1 European background. He is such a good striker. So tricky. You're going to see him for a really long time. I like Farazim's uh, stock moving forward, and I think that was a win that he needed to have. Benjamini had success when he crashed and was able to gain distance. Pimblet's growing in his striking. Benjamini's kind of already there, and I think he's only going to get better with more time spent at Factory X. Now, he's been a constrictor team guy, so what's he good at? His takedowns, his wrestling, and his jiu-jitsu. He's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt as well. And I like how he controls guys when things are down to the mat. Now, Zeon was able to scramble and get back up to his feet because he's such a longer guy. And Pimblet is a longer guy by a little bit in this fight. So it'll be interesting to see how this fight takes place. But I like Benjamini on the feet. And I hope that going forward with my pick, he's at least positionally sound enough on the mat if it gets to that point against Pimblet. But like you said, Pimblet's the type of guy that... He'll like jump and cinch up that guillotine. He is able to grab your arm. He's able to go for an arm lock and then get out of that position. He's so great when it does get to the mat. That's what makes this fight so much fun. I think stylistically, this is one of the, the trickiest fights to try and get when you go with it. I like Vendramini for the power and I like him on the feet. And if he's able to keep it there... I think he's going to have a lot of success. So I've got Vendramini in this fight. I think this fight is going to become a grappling match at a certain point. Vendramini, I think, has the better striking. But again, I don't think it's to such a degree to where this fight will only be contested on the feet. And the thing about Pimblet, you almost set it up too well for me. The way to beat Vendramini is four scrambles with him. He's a good grappler, but he is very positionally dominant. Even against Elysium Zaleski Dos Santos, when he would get in half guard, when he would be in full guard, when he would be in set positions, he would have great success. And that's actually how he took the back of uh, Zaleski Dos Santos. The issue is that when Zaleski would try to explode to his feet, when he would create scrambles, he could have a little bit of success in the grappling. And that was the same thing Phariseum did. That's the way Paddy Pimblet grapples off of his back. He loves those scrambles. He loves making an ugly fight from a grappling standpoint. And I do think that if he is able to make this a grappling fight, I think Paddy Pimblet will be able to get it done in his UFC debut. We'll see what happens. We're split on the pick. I've got Brazil's Vendramini. I am in, what, the very small minority. 14% of the voters over on Topology have him to win. You've got Paddy Pimblet finally making his debut. I cannot wait for this fight. It should be a great one. I have this one circled as one of those possible fight of the night so you're not going to want to miss it we got a great one up at the top too brunson taking on till keep it locked in with fight night picks as we always say let's get into it if you've been liking the stuff from fight night picks consider supporting the channel by utilizing the super thanks all you have to do down below the video you toss in a little bit of bonus you buy yourself an animated super thanks and they will post the following public comment on your behalf all sorts of different options out there. We'd certainly appreciate the support with the channel. You guys are definitely the best fans in all of MMA. And we appreciate each and every one of you. And hope that you definitely enjoy this weekend's card between Jared Cannon and Calvin Gaslam. All sorts of great matchups littered throughout. We appreciate the continued support of the channel and the boys. Thanks so much. Without further ado, let's get into it.
If you have a strong feeling about this fight, I need you to do me a favor. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, what you need to do, rate and review the show. Give us a five-star rating. We'd certainly appreciate it. If you're on YouTube, toss a like, but then, this is what I want. Throw it down below in the comments section. I want to know who you have between Khalil Roundtree and Modestus Bukowskis because this is one of those fights that's really hard to try and cap. For Khalil Roundtree, he came into the UFC, he could wrestle a little bit, he could strike a little bit, he was an interesting and tricky southpaw, he has nice wins by knockout over Gokan Saki, over, who else, Eric Anders, he beat him by decision, but he almost finished him, because it was, that was a true warhorse Khalil Roundtree, but what I want to do in this video, normally we do it when it's the fighter's first time out, this is really Modestus Bukowskis' fourth time out with the UFC, I'm going to throw it back to a rookie review before he fought Andreas Mikhailidis so you can get a little bit of a taste of what Bukowskis really is special and good at because he is a tricky striker when it comes down to it. I mean, if you look at Modestus Bukowskis, he's beaten some notable names, some guys that you might recognize from maybe not just the regional scene, but a guy like Marcin Wojcik, who's competed for KSW's light heavyweight championship against Tomasz Narkun. He's taken on in his last fight, a tough out in Ricardo Nasiglia, in a fight where he faced a little bit of adversity, weathered the storm, and unleashed Travis Brown elbows and got the win there. This is an issue for Modestus Bukowskis. He gets taken down fairly easily. And I know Wojcik is a bit of an outlier. He's a guy that can do that to a lot of good fighters. But Bukowskis so far defending the takedown, not that great. But the good thing for him is he does the opposite of like a Habib. He's one of those guys where it might be rinse and repeat for the opponent. But Bukowskis is able to get back to the fence, get back up to his feet and strike. And he's such an unorthodox striker. So there's a reason why I threw it back to a rookie review for Modestus Bukowskis. Because you look at it in his first fight against Mikhailidis, it's weird. He throws those elbows, Travis Brown style. Mikhailidis falls through the cage door. It ends up a TKO win at the end of the first round. Then he goes out and he gets knocked out by Jim Crute. Well, that's fine. That was 10 months ago. Then he takes on Michael Olaszczyk and he loses by split decision. But did he really? He did. No, he didn't. I mean, I went back, watched that fight. I scored two rounds for Bukowskis. If you look at it, Ron McCarthy and who was it? Tr Tony Weeks. They said, yeah, it was 29-28 Olaszczyk. Over on MMA decisions, Matthew Wells friend of the show, had it 29-28 for Olaszczyk. 16 other voters had it 29-28 for Bukowskis. One had it 30-27 for Bukowskis as well. It really comes down to how you scored that second round. I know numbers-wise, it is very close. On the rewatch, I could understand where if you judged it based on Olaszczyk's pressure, maybe you gave him a round. He lands and more power shots. He lands shots, but they don't actually get through the guard. But for me, I look at that fight, I had it for Bukowskis, so either way, he could be on a two-fight losing streak, or he could have won one back, and he could be 2-1 and one in the UFC. But ultimately, he's pretty well fighting for his job in this one. Same can be said for Khalil Roundtree, who, against Martian Prakniau, looked lost in the first round, came back in the second round, and then let Prakniau take over in the third round. It was a weird one. Are we going to get K1 Khalil or not? That's my question. Because K1 Khalil Roundtree, the guy who fought Eric Anders, is a handful. He was a minus 400 favorite, I should say, too, against Prakniel. And Prakniel was on that three-fight streak that included zombieing and getting knocked out by Sam Alvey. 
the problem with Bukowskis is that he hasn't been the same fighter that he was outside the UFC that he is in the UFC. I don't know if it's octagon trainers. I don't know what it is, but I don't feel like we've seen the same fighter who we were promised at least after that Mikhailidis fight because Bukowskis is a really interesting fighter. He's tall. He's rangy for the weight class. He's great at fighting backwards, and that's why the Chuck fight is close because he's moving backwards a lot in that fight, and he is eating shots, but he's countering effectively off the back foot, and that's really what this fight comes down to. Bukowskis, it's weird. He's almost better fighting backwards than he is moving forward, but Khalil Roundtree Jr. doesn't always give you the pressure that you would like from Roundtree. When Roundtree is using those leg kicks, setting up his left hook with the right straight, those are things that would slow down that movement of Bukowskis. I just can't rely on Khalil to throw those techniques, fight in and fight out, because like you said, look at that Pracnia fight. He has okay success in the first round. Yes, he does look lost, but still, when he lands on Pracnia, when he does throw his hands, he wobbles up every single time. He has Pracnia doing the Kevin Lee chicken dance every time he lands a strike. But the issue is that he goes for the knockout kind of in the second round, throws like four power shots, and then it was very similar to when Jorgen Castro broke his foot against Greg Hardy, and no one really knew that he broke his foot yet. It was just like, okay... Why are you standing there not doing anything? That's kind of Khalil in that third round against Pracnow. Pracnow's moving forward. He's doing just enough to win the round. And even Roundtree was upset like he was Sam Alvey after that fight. He thought he won. But my issue is that when you don't do enough offensively to justify a win, you can't complain about the decision afterwards. Khalil Roundtree's offensive output really is the issue with his whole career. Because when he is the guy moving forward, did you think he was going to beat Gokan Saki? I certainly didn't. But when he's moving forward, pressuring his opponents, the power shots are more likely to land. So the fight, this fight really does come down to how much of Michael Olachechuk do you think Khalil Roundtree is? Personally, I don't think he has the same technique that Olachechuk has. And I don't think he has the cardio, even though Olachechuk's cardio can be kind of shaky. I still feel like he has at least steady output throughout 15 minutes, where Khalil Roundtree, he might be great for three minutes and then fall off a cliff for the next seven. I just don't really know what I'm going to get with Khalil Roundtree. With Bukowskis, I like his backward movements. I do like his kicks, too, in open space. And that's what I really think is going to come down to for Bukowskis. I think his output is just a little bit higher for round, than Roundtree's. And I don't think he's going to be uh, hit by that big power shot from Roundtree. It's really, really tricky when you look at it. I mean, you focus on the knockout losses that Roundtree had. Johnny Walker, Iwan oh. Kutsalaba, he loses that one by finish. And then, of course, the fight against Pracnio. Huge favorite, and Pracnia was on a wild losing streak where, like, we were joking around. It was almost like Muradov taking on Mearshart, and didn't that striking signatures just take a bump? I, but people were looking at Pracnia the wrong way, and he was getting knocked out in the early part of his UFC run. That's why it was so surprising to see him eat power shots from Roundtree and keep moving forward afterwards. So you look at it Bukowskis just lost against a Southpaw and Olshechuk, Roundtree, he's a Southpaw himself. The odds for this one. Bukowskis open a plus 136. The line corrected off the hop. He's a minus 156 favorite right now. Roundtree open a minus 150 favorite. He is a plus 128 underdog. If we look at the top topology votes, not really that close. 521 total votes. 69% Bukowskis. 42% by decision. 51% by knockout. For the 31% that have Roundtree, 28% by decision. 71% by knockout. So there is a decent preponderance of people out there that think that there's going to be a knockout in this fight. I have a really hard time with this one. I mean, does Roundtree walk him down, knock him out? Is he able to do that? Will he implement a little bit of wrestling? Because that's a big key. Bukowskis' defensive wrestling is not good at all. And if I could focus on any fight, and I did it in the rookie review, Ricardo Nasiglia was able to take him down and take him down and take him down. And then Bukowskis, up against the fence, is able to do enough work to finish him. But Bukowskis, not a great wrestler. 
he struggles when he he's good at backing up but sometimes he struggles against some of those shots and the roundtree of old the roundtree coming in off the ultimate fighter that somehow made his way to the finals to lose against el Dierte sanchez can't really wrestle yeah not really the greatest a wrestler i mean even statistically if you look at it roundtree hasn't landed a takedown in the ufc he's a terrible grappler 50 percent defense so we'll see what happens i mean again height wise reach wise those keys uh land in modestus bukhouse's favor so if you're making a pick the guy that's more active it's really tough it will be the guy who's more active and i think that's modestus bukhouse i really do it is weird because for such a big guy for such a natural striker he doesn't really have that one punch power that you kind of expect from his frame at 205 pounds so if there is a finish it more than likely will be from Khalil roundtree but i do like bukhouse's staying power he was able to eat some pretty big shots from ola shachuk and that's a big power puncher at 205 pounds so i do think he'll be able to eat whatever power shots roundtree is able to land if he is able to land any and i do think that the range that he keeps in between him and his opponent is really going to cause issue for uh khalil Tree's a guy i didn't really mention it but he beat eric anders after going to thailand changing his stance a little bit and then he comes out of king's mma and he hasn't looked as good now he's at syndicate training kind of full-time so we'll see how that goes check out his instagram of him rolling over bouncy balls if you want to see how athletic the guy is because it's insane I'll ever so slightly edge Modestus Bukowskis, but again, both of these guys eat a lot of shots, and they give out a lot of punishment as well, so if the forward pressure of Roundtree is able to take over, and he is able to eat at that lead leg of Bukowskis, we'll see a giant win for Khalil Roundtree. If Bukowskis is able to win, I think it's going to be by decision. I don't think he's going to knock out Khalil Roundtree, who has been susceptible to the knockout, but it's more so out of those one-punch guys, out of the guys that are a little more well-rounded. So, I'm going with Bukowskis here, representing England and Lithuania, but it's not one of the more confident picks on the card. The loser's probably going to get cut, and that sucks to say, but these guys really are fighting for their UFC careers. This, with This is like Alvi Terman levels here. It is. I think Vanessa Bukowskis can be able to get it done. Both of us going with Bukowskis. In this fight, we've got a great card and down a weight class at 185 pounds. You have Brunson taking on Till in the main event. You're not going to want to miss that video. So keep locked in. And as we always say, let's, let's get, get into it. What was originally supposed to be David Zavada taking on Sergei Kandoshko is now turned into a short notice replacement fight for Alex Morono. One of the most consistently inconsistent fighters in the UFC. And I have to say, Matt, I have this circled as one of three possible fight of the nights. These guys absolutely show up to show out. And both of these guys match up very well stylistically. For David Zavada, from the opening minute, he might look a little tired. He does get pretty puffy when he gets hit. And you hate to see that in a guy because you have to wonder how that factors into a judge's decision at the end of the day. But if you look at it for Zavada so far in the UFC, not the sexiest of records at 1-3. and three. He had a fight of the night in his debut against Danny Roberts. He got knocked out with a body kick by Li Jingliang. He earns a performance bonus against Abubakar Nurmagomedov where he gets on his back and then submits him, which was kind of crazy. And then he loses a split decision to Ramzan Amiv, a guy that just never goes away when you fight him. And just, I get upset when he fights because he thinks he's a kickboxer. Just wrestle everybody, Ramzan, and maybe you can make it all the way up to the top at 170 pounds. But I said it from the hot mat. Alex Morono, consistently inconsistent. The five on in. He beats Max Griffin in a war, which is crazy. He gets knocked out by a flurry of punches against Chaos Williams. He beats Reese McKee pillar to post, 30-27 the whole time. He loses to Anthony Pettis where he gets out-pressured the entire fight. And then he knocks out Cowboy Cerrone three months ago and he looks like the world's his oyster. It's just a weird run. 
He, both of these guys have earned performance bonuses throughout their tenure in the UFC. And since about 2000 and let's say 18 have been some of the more exciting guys to watch in this division. I love this fight from a pure stylistic standpoint because I think Zavada would have beaten Kandoshko, who was away for a long time, had a few injuries to heal up. I had Zavada in that fight. Now against Morono, and I won't tip my hand, but he's now an underdog in this fight. So that makes it all the more interesting. I don't feel like I'm speaking out terms when I say this. This feels a little bit like a step back for Alex Morono. At least after the Cowboy fight, I really thought that Morono was going to get at least a borderline top 15 guy or maybe a Matt Brown, maybe a Miguel Baeza, like bigger names, you know, people along those lines. I didn't think he'd be fighting Davis Zavada on short notice of all things. And the good thing about Alex Morono is he's one of those fighters. He's always kind of ready to fight no matter who the opponent is. He really is known for, okay, hey, we need some guy at 170 pounds. Is Alex Morono ready? And he always is. Well, Morono probably went, you know what? And this was announced before, but Ricky Tertios, you train with me? I'm your coach, buddy. Now it's my turn to take Exactly. That. And that's the good thing about Alex Morono. We talk about this with guys like Michael Johnson. There's a lot of fighters. Michael Case is another guy. Alex Morono is always in the gym. And whether it's either working on his own skill set or his own teammates, it's just something that you do really appreciate from Alex Morono. And that's the thing I do like from him. He does struggle. And I'll get to the consistently inconsistent bit, but I really think Alex Morono just struggles with speed in his fights. I do think faster opponents give him trouble because he can overwhelm most guys with his volume. Power-wise, I don't think he's the most powerful striker in the world. Again, most of his power shots are because he just throws a hundred punches at you, and one of those hundred, if they do land in the right place, can rock you. That's why I think when people look at Alex Bruno and they look at the last fight against Cowboy Cerrone, that's kind of like buying Alex Bruno's stock at its peak. That's like Bitcoin at like, what? I don't know what high Bitcoin is, but that's like buying Bitcoin when it's really high before it crashes. I think Alex Bruno can get knockouts at the UFC level, but I don't think he's the type of guy who can go out there, head kick opponents, then finish them up against the cage like he did against Cowboy. I do think a lot of the time it is that pound the rock mentality to quote Doris Burke, and he is a fighter who can get it done that way. Look at the Reese McKee fight. Reese McKee is kind of like Ferris Zeeum. He's got the weirdest frame ever for the weight class. He's this huge fighter, very rangy, but Alex Morono made it an ugly fight. He got on the inside side all the time. He used uppercuts. He made it a very ugly fight. Uh, it was a great fight to watch, but his style made it very ugly. He made it uh, more of a war of attrition than it was just a war of skill sets, and that's why this fight against Zavada is weird. Zavada coming off a loss, and I, I know maybe beating Cowboy doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people anymore, but still, that's a big name, and the UFC is a company that is trying to build contenders and build names. That's why I'm kind of surprised Morono is in this one. Well, if you look at it for Zavada, he was training for Kandoshko, who's a good striker he pushes a decent pace he has terrible wrestling so that's the one knock on good grappling but bad in terms of takedown defense his offense is pretty good his defense is pretty bad if you've never seen Sergey Kandoshko I can't fault you because the guy's hardly ever fought in the UFC but he is a decent litmus test especially where Zavada coming into a camp getting ready for Morono it's a fairly similar fighter it's like a 1b now 1A. And for Zavada, you might have seen it before. He's trained at a UFD gym in the past. It's got to be awkward because he's got a loss way back when to Boris Mankowski, who has been in the corner of Mateusz Gamrot, who now trains with David Zavada. So there's a whole ATT connection. And you talk about that. Morono's a guy that corners a lot of people. We've seen David Zavada corner some people as well. And since moving to ATT, you throw out some of those names. He's been training with Santiago Ponzinibbio, uh, Omar Yakhmedov, Yaroslav Amasov. Some pretty good names of guys to train with, especially for a fight like this. So, I talked about it, the odds. I was kind of surprised that Alex Morono opened a minus 205 favorite. He's a minus 179 right now. For Zavada, opened a plus 165. He's a plus 149 right now. 
I haven't seen the topology votes. I'm either going to be surprised or not at all. I'm yeah, surprised. 316 total votes, 82% Morono, 73% by decision. For the 18% that have Zavada, 72% by decision. This fight's going to come down to a couple of different keys. Alex Morono has kind of a similar opponent game plan already in place when he fought Max Griffin. He was able to beat Griffin. I think a fight against Zavada is very similar. For Zavada, that fight against Danny Roberts was really close. The fight that he beat Abubakar Nurmagomedov in, that was a huge Hail Mary of a surprise. And then other than that, I mean, you look at the other losses. Li Jingliang, body shot knockout. That's a flash thing. That's going to happen. Ramazan Amiv was tough for even top 15 guys to beat. So it really is tricky to try and get your bearings on Zavada in the UFC. So what are you thinking here? Because I know we kind of leaned each way just over in the overall analysis. I think Alex Morono is a very complete guy. He's got a Taekwondo background. He's got a Jiu-Jitsu background. Zavada has decent kickboxing. He's very well-rounded as well. That's why I think that on paper, this one matches up well stylistically. So who are you taking here? Morono might have the, ta the Taekwondo background, but he still fights primarily like a kickboxer. He's not somebody who throws less spinning techniques. He just sets up his kicks with his hands, and he does it to great effect. That's actually why I think Alex Morono is going to be able to get this done. I know it's on short notice, but this is one of the few fighters that actually have some level of confidence with coming in on short notice. He's done it before. He is one of those guys. I'm sure Dana White probably has like a very short list of guys where he's like, listen, they might not have a big Instagram following. They might not be household names. You know, but Carlos Ulberg. No, but they put on good fights when I call them and they show up to fight when I do call them. And Alex Brown is one of those guys. I think if he is able to get the win over David Zavada, it is going to be on the feet because the thing about Zavada is he's so tricky on the mat if he is able to get that takedown. I just don't think he's going to get the opportunity to get Morono down to the mat. And that's why it's going to be primarily a striking battle between the two and it's hard to pick against Morono in that. Morono's wins. Derek Krantz, Kyle Noak, one of Matt's favorite fighters. Who is it? James Butossery. Great fighter. He's got that weird fight against Nico Price. He beat Josh Berkman, sunken on Zach Otto, Max Griffin, Reese McKee, Donald Cerrone. Reese McKee was just one of those not ready for primetime players like on Saturday Night Live. I'll ever so slightly go with Alex Morono but again David Zavada has been getting ready for a fighter very similar to Morono. He's kind of in a nothing to lose when no one knows your name type situation where in the UFC, it hasn't been great. One and three, you have to think with another loss. That's probably it for Zavada. Though he is an all-action fighter and he has two performance bonuses to his name, I'm ever so slightly going with Alex Morono to buck the old random Marcos trend of win-loss, win-loss. And I think Morono's going to be able to get his second win in a row. So ever so slightly going with Morono. Not necessarily in love with the odds. I think they're going to get a little bit closer as the week goes on. And I can't wait to see these guys face off on Friday. So this could be one that switches on question mark kicks. But... I'm going with Morono here. You've got great weight as well. Yeah, I like the volume out of him. And his counter-wrestling is quite good. I think if this fight does stay on the feet, he is at least a lasting presence throughout 15 minutes. And we've seen him have an extremely high output throughout 15 minutes. It's not like he can only get to the final bell because he's throwing single shots. This is a guy who moves forward a lot in his fights and throws in combination. And that's why it's so hard to beat Morono by decision. That's why I like Morono in this one. I think Zavada has a great opportunity in this one. Maybe more so than the 18% that have voted with him. Let's hear it from you down below in the comments section who do you have between zavada and morono can't wait for it we're both going with morono big time fight card you got the debut of mandy boom she's going to be taking on ariani lipsky then you've got aspinall who's taking on spivak and in the main event brunson tilt you're not going to want to miss so keep it locked in with fight night picks and as we always say let's get into it
Big time fight in a UFC debut for the former champion in Canada, Germany's own monster Mandy Boom, the O Umlaut, you gotta get it, so Boom, uh, taking on Queen of Violence, Ariane Lipsky. Now, I did struggle with violence, I don't know why that was, but this is an interesting fight because for Mandy Boom, you look at the level of competition that she's faced so far in her young MMA career. She has the belt from TKO. She was able to get the win over Jade Mason Wong. And in that fight, it was an interesting one. TKO 48 was absolutely stacked. If you haven't gone back and watched that one on Fight Pass, it's insane. There's three title fights up at the top. Nate Main has fought on that card. Uh, you had Cyril Gaon taking on Souza. Like, it was wild stuff. She's able to win there. She gets the flyweight belt, third round, rear naked choke win. After that, a long layoff, about a year and a half. She took on Greet Ekout over with Bellator, Bellator 247 at the end of 2020. She wins that fight by decision. But she was originally, before that, supposed to take on Liz Carmouche in her Bellator debut. In the UFC, she was supposed to take on Tyla Santos. That's how highly promotions think of Mandy Boom, a fighter that's represented... A fighter that's represented SBG Ireland in the past. Now she's training out of MMA spirit in Germany. I'm sure that's kind of due to the pandemic. But again, you look at it, maybe not the highest level of competition. I mean, her debut, 0 0 0 3-1, 2-3, 0-1, 3-0, 5-3-1. And in that fight against Greet Eckhout, I went back and watched that one today, among others. And the trouble that I had... Mandy Boom, great striker, really nice jab out there. She throws a nice low kick. She can kind of bring her hands down, and I know that was something that throughout the fight, John McCarthy was talking about it. You got to bring your hands up. And then her coach, John Cavanaugh, was saying, you got to bring your hands up. And eventually she did, but she gets hit by a lot of shots against fighters that maybe aren't the highest level. And if we can say anything about Ariane Lipsky, She's another one of those fighters. Consistently inconsistent. She loses fights she should probably win. And in this one, like, it's a make-or-break opportunity for Lipsky. I think if she loses this fight, she's out of the UFC. So let me just set this up. You have a former KSW champion whose nickname is the Queen of Violence. Was, How excited are you? Was thought to maybe, A, crack the top 15, make her way up it, and make a strong case to at least get into the top five. And I'm not overly pumping her up and saying that. That was like the perception around the Queen of Violence. Like, hey, this is our next like Karolina Kovalkiewicz. That's what I was going to say. And that's the thing about Lipsky, though. She doesn't really have any massive strength to her game. People are going to talk about her Muay Thai. Her striking's not that good, if we're being completely honest. I do kind of lump her into that be a Malecki Muay Thai artist because you might have the credentials, but I only care about what your style is inside the cage. She doesn't really fight like a Muay Thai fighter. Yes, she has kicks from the outside, but Lipsky's best spot is top control on the ground. She's someone who has really good ground and from the guard. It's a weird place. She doesn't really pass guard. She's kind of like Crow Cop. She goes for a lot of elbows in the open guard. But she is a very unique fighter in that aspect where a lot of people are going to talk about, oh, she's such a good striker. I really look at Lipsky more as a grappler in MMA than I do as a striker because most of her success does come that way. It is, I'm going to kind of beat you up on the feet. Her opponent shoot for a takedown. She gets top position, then uses good ground and pound. The thing about Lipsky, though, is she's never really been able to beat that upper echelon in her career. And yes, her run in KSW was very impressive. And just her run in general before the UFC was really nice. But my issue I always have with Lipsky is she's one of those fighters who needs a lot of distance to get off a lot of her offense. But she's so bad at keeping that distance between her and her opponent. If she does have her kickboxing range, then yes, she does have a good accuracy.
active jab. She does have good straight shots coming down in the middle. The issue is that any time an opponent's able to get on the inside, clinch with her, get her up against the cage, I don't know if it's just a physical strength that she lacks, but she is a fighter who can be controlled on the ground and up against the cage. Yeah, if you look at it for Lipsky, from the hop, she was taking on really good competition. Her first fight, a win over Diana Turcato, who's taking on good fighters. She ended up losing to Firmino, who's taking on good fighters. And then you look at the big win streak that she had with different promotions, Invicta, or sorry, Immortal, as well as KSW, where she was the champ. Beat Sheila Gaff. Beat Diana Belbizia. Finished her in the first round. Beat Mariano Morais that you might have seen over with PFL here recently. Then she ends up in the UFC. Loses unanimous decision to Joanne Calderwood. Okay, they thought you were here. You weren't. Loses to Molly McCann. Okay, yeah. you're not there. She beats Isabella De Padua, and that's a unanimous decision win. But De Padua was on incredibly short notice, and for that fight, you were supposed to have a fight against Macedo, a fight against Priscilla Cachueta. Those fell out. De Padua came in on super short notice and gave a decent account of herself. Then she takes on Luana Carolina in a fight that's booked, booked, and rebooked. She wins that one by wild knee bar. Was it Sulev stretch? Was it knee bar? Yeah, it she let out the crazy yell. It was awesome. She gets completely dominated by Antonina Shevchenko. She gets dominated by Montana De La Rosa and finished. Well, by the way, that was a hair shy of three months ago. So it is a really quick comeback for her. Whereas Mandy Boom's been out for quite some time. Her last fight, again, like I said, with Bellator against Greet Akeout back at Bellator 247 almost a year ago. I, this is going to be a really odd fight because if Boom can get some of her power shots off on the feet, I actually think she is the better striker in this fight. I know that's going to take a lot of people by surprise, but I think she's the more active striker. At least that's what I should say. I do worry about Lipsky creating distance in all of her fights. And again, my issue with Lipsky is I don't even really know what her strength is because again, a lot of her success is in the grappling department, but even look at her last two fights. She's someone who can get held down. And that's something we see. Remember when Jack Hermanson fought Jacare Souza? I I know Jacare is amazing at jiu-jitsu, but Jack Hermanson is a great grappler himself and very heavy on top. And that was one of those weird fights where when Hermanson was able to get on top of Jacare, he could hold him down. If you're able to hold down Jacare, who's one of the best black belts to ever transition over at MMA, then you can do the same thing to Ariane Lipsky. It's just an odd little wrinkle in her game that she's never been able to overcome. Off of her back, she isn't good at all, but in top position, she does have success. So this fight could go pretty much any way. I think if Lipsky loses this one, it's fair to say this is probably it for her UFC career unless I don't know maybe Dana White likes her like he likes Sam Alvey hey Sam you've lost nine in a row we'll throw you out there again ah, it's the judges yeah I don't know who you're yelling at Sam you didn't throw a punch in the third round I think Mandy Boom can actually win this fight. I, that might be a controversial thing to say, but I honestly do think that with her combination of clinch control and her activity on the feet, I think she's going to be able to beat Lipsky. I just don't think Ariane Lipsky's the fighter that I thought she was coming into the UFC. I think the fighter that's undefeated and the favorite is going to win. I know it may be controversial. I went back and watched a lot of tape on both these fighters. I think Mandy Boom, again, if she's moving out there, orthodox stance, pump the jab, pump the jab. The trouble that she has is she is a striker. She's training with Katharina Lehner that you might have seen on The Ultimate Fighter. That was the same season, 28, where you had who? Macy Chasson, Penny Kanzad in the finals. But you look at it for Boom, and she goes out there. She throws a lot of wild looping shots, and she's not very defensively sound. So any fighter that can throw straight shots at her, they're going to have a lot of success. But Manny can mix it up. She can work in some of those takedowns. She's not really able to hold a lot of fighters down. 
Greet Eckhout. I didn't find everybody lives geek could prove her wrong though. I didn't find Eckhout in her last fight to be a strong fighter whatsoever. I know again, positive record, five, three, and one, but it wasn't the greatest. Again, hands low. Not the greatest striking defense. Take on a decent striker. I look at the odds for this one. Boom, open a minus 170 favorite. She's minus 117 right now. Lipsky open a plus 145. She's a plus, or sorry, a minus 106 right now. Over on Topology, I got to bring it back. I haven't had a look at the votes for this one, so it's, it's... I'm assuming they're close. I'm assuming that Mandy Boom is a pretty decent favorite in this one. Uh, let's see. This is great. We're stalling because I got to bring it up. Uh, 67% of 467 voters have Boom to win. 87% by decision for the 33% that have Lipsky. 73% by decision. You're not taking on a Shevchenko, who is another weird fighter. Like, she can get held down by Caitlin Chukagian, but in other fights, she has decent grappling. Yes. And if you look at it, Boom isn't also uh, Montana De La Rosa. I like Ariane Lipsky on the feet in this one. I think that's where she's going to be able to do a lot of her work. But I can definitely see this fight, as a lot of people can, going to decision. I'm ever so slightly going with Ariane Lipsky, which seems insane. She's 2-3 and three in her last five. And she struggled in certain areas where Boom is good at. But when I watch that tape out of Mandy Boom, not the most active in terms of fights in the cage. And I, lacking in striking defense. So I'm going with Lipsky. But again... I see this fight like we had, uh, who was it? Melissa Gatto taking on Victoria Leonardo. Gatto is such a whiz on the ground. How good she gotten in the time away? That's my question for Mandy Boom. How good does she get fight over fight? I haven't personally seen it yet, so that's why I've got to go with the consistency of Lipsky, which might sound silly, but I like Lipsky in this fight. Consistency with Lipsky is why she's going to win. No, you're right. Like, you can't die on a hill on either one of these fighters. If you're confident going either way, then you don't know anything about MMA. Because these fighters stylistically are just a weird matchup together. Ariel Lipsky could have success on the feet. But again, I've seen her get hit too much on the feet for me to say, like, wow, she has great Muay Thai. And the problem I have with Lipsky, and this is the truth... She just gave up against Montana De La Rosa. Like, she couldn't get up to her feet. It's not like the ground and pound was like uh, Gregor Gillespie when he fought uh, Carlos Diego Fajaya in the second round where Fajaya was tired and Gillespie's, like, beating on him. Lipsky just couldn't get up and was like, okay, I give up. That's the last thing I want out of an MMA fighter. And I guess just because of that personality flaw, if that's even what you want to call it, I think Manny Boom is going to win this one. But again, I I'm going to look dumb no matter who I predict. Just... All I can say, if you haven't done it already, go back and watch their fights. Don't go off of the records. Don't go off of the five on in and make your judgment off of that. Off of that is why I went with Lipsky. She did an interview with Low Kick MMA and James Lynch. She's training with Nina Nunez. I keep on going back, Nunes. though. Er, uh, what was his name? Courtney K. Not Yeah, Courtney Casey. I'm going to wrestle. I'm going to wrestle Song Yudong. He didn't at all. Casey Kenny. Casey Kenny, goodness, not Courtney Casey. I got that mixed up. But Casey Kenny said that in interviews, and he still fought the same way he always does. I just can't put a lot of stock in interviews for fights. I've got Lipsky, Matt's got Boom. Let us know down below who you have in one this one. One of us one. is going to look dumb. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough fight. It really is. But we've got two big ones up at the top. Tom Aspinall taking on Sergey Spivak. You've got a really tough out in Derek Brunson taking on Darren Till. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. And as we always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. Today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Manscaped, the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. It's back to school time, and we want to make sure that you pack the essentials to have your best year yet. The Manscaped fourth generation. It's crazy. The fourth iteration already. 
the performance package, it's just that. Things are opening up. Be ready for whatever is in the daily schedule for you. It's the perfect package for your package and includes the brand new Lawnmower 4.0. Mm. So, fellas, go for the valedictorian of ball trimming and join the over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by going to manscaped.com with the code FNP. Matt. We've got the performance package 4.0 right in front of us. What are some of the highlights here? Uh, so you've not only got the ball deodorant, which we all know and love. You don't only have the ball toner, but of course the prized possession of this is the lawnmower 4.0. If you could pull it out. We all know the great light and Excuse the, you. And the RPMs. <laughs> But yeah, that's the great thing about Manscaped. I know the one thing that we always talk about is the light and how valuable it is if you are a shower shaver like the boys at FNPR. But the other great thing is too, it doesn't have a metal blade because we've both been there before. You get those metal, those kind of cheap ones at your big brand stores and they do rust out. They're only good for what, two, maybe three weeks then you notice... I don't really want to nick my nuts with that rusty blade. The good thing is with the ceramic blade, that's not really something you ever have to worry about. Ceramic blade, and the easiest part about it is you can pop the top off to clean out the hair. You can oil the motor like you should with most mechanical things. I mean, listen, take it from me. A guy who's involved in an industry like that outside of Fight Night Picks, that that is what you should do. But for me, in traveling this week, and I will be away, we're taping these prediction videos on the weekend a little bit earlier to get them out to you a little bit quicker. But all that being said, I'm going to be bringing the Manscaped Performance Package with me on the road. And the greatest thing about it, I mean, Matt touched on it. Obviously, you have the light with the 4.0, but you triple tap that main bar, one, two, three, my lights are going up, and then all of a sudden, that travel lock is activated. This isn't going to turn on in my luggage. I don't have to show up to my destination. I'm eager to shave my nuts, and I can't do it. And then if you triple tap again, one, two, three, your bar is going to go back down, and then all of a sudden, you're good to go and good to use it. Great charging stand as well if you want to impress the friends and family heading towards this Labor Day weekend and back into the old back to school. And you know that school's back and the performance package 4.0 from Manscaped is here to teach the boys a lesson on male hygiene inside. You'll find, like I said, the lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, the weed whacker ear and nose hair trimmer. Now, Matt, we've touched on that before. I have what's known as a chronic nose hair problem. I've had it for the longest time before I was using Manscaped. I had that cheap department store trimmer for my nose as well. And the worst part of it was... You had to put a battery in it. It was a single AA, and that sucker would drain really quick. This simple, easy to charge, waterproof as well. You can hear it working in around the microphone. Hopefully, you enjoy that one. But the Lawnmower 4.0 itself, it has a 7,000 RPM motor. So, you know that it's going to work great in a 4,000K LED spotlight. So, if you pick up that Performance Package 4.0, they're going to give you the liquid formulations. Let me see what I got in here. Boom, the Crop Reviver Ball Toner, a little bit of a spritz. You know you're going to have a long day. It's a nice thing to put on the in the morning. And if you want to go super duty, the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, if you really know it's going to be a tricky one out there, tricky and sticky, all you're going to do, it's like a salve. Slap that stuff on, and it's going to serve you well all day. You pick up the performance package. You get the Shed Travel Bag. You get the Manscaped boxers as well or i should say boxer briefs but all sorts of great stuff from manscape and since the fnp fans have been really helping out the show you can go over check them out and get 20 percent off and free shipping with code fnp at manscape.com that's 20 percent off and free shipping with code fnp at manscape.com this year graduate with a degree in clean balls from manscape matt 
Big time card this weekend. A shuffle and a jumble of a co-main event. We've got Aspinall taking on Spivok up next. And in the main event, holy smokes, Brunson versus Till. Middleweight showcase. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. And as we always say, let's, let's get, get into, into it. it. I'm disappointed, but I'm not. Ultimately, in our co-main event coming up this weekend, we get Tom Aspinall, the striking pride of England, taking on... Moldova's Sergei Spivak. Now, originally it was supposed to be another Sergei. It was supposed to be Sergei Pavlovich. And I've got this to say. Take the guy to the rankings pool. He hasn't been active. He's hardly fought. He doesn't deserve that number 15 spot. But you know who does? The guy at 14 and the guy at 13 that are fighting in this one. Aspinall at 13 and Spivak at 14. And really for Sergei Spivak, he's only really struggled against one guy in the UFC. And that was Marcin Tabora. And Matt, if... Mm. Marcin Tabora is like, uh, what? Let's say Marcin Tabora is like Costco-level fighter. What would Sergey Spivak be to Marcin Tabora's Costco? If Costco would be Kirkland, which is good stuff, don't get me wrong, he'd probably be like Superstore No Name, I'd say. For you guys in the States, it'd be like... If Great Han- Value Walmart. Great Value Walmart, or maybe even like Hannaford, whatever Hannaford has, or the Publix version. Go ahead. This could be a phenomenal fight, though, because Sergei Spivak is a really interesting fighter. You can't really pin down exactly what he does well, because he is such a well-rounded MMA heavyweight, and that's the really unique thing about the heavyweight division right now. For the longest time, it felt like, okay, we have boxers, we have wrestlers, we have wrestle boxers, and that's pretty much it. Then Fabrice over Doom, who just kind of like Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu, but other than that, we just saw a lot of wrestle boxers, and now we're getting all of a sudden this kind of new influence of heavyweights who can just do everything, and I'm also going to include Tom Aspinall in that category, because Sergey Spivak, he can fight on the outside. He's got decent boxing. He's got good volume for the heavyweight division. A great wrestler with good uh, jiu-jitsu as well. And then look at Tom Aspinall. He's got phenomenal boxing. I'd argue some of the best in the division. But he's also a bit Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt on the mat. These are two guys who just kind of represent this new wave of MMA heavyweights. And the other thing too is, these are guys in their 20s in the heavyweight division. We don't see this ever. Most of the guys in the heavyweight division, at least near the top of the rankings, are 36 to like 41. They're like Nelson Cruz almost. You get better with age. Because in heavyweight, the most important attribute to have in the heavyweight division is power. And power is the last thing to go. Now you're seeing heavyweights who don't just rely on that one-punch knockout power. You do have guys like Cyril Gaon, who's at the top of the division now, who can use his volume, use his footwork, use all those weird intangibles to win a fight, and not just go out there and rely on his one-punch knockout ability. This will be a really interesting fight, because for me, I think Tom Aspinall can grapple with Sergei Spivak throughout the majority of this fight. If Sergey Spivak, though, can get top position on Tom Aspinall, that's when the fight and that's when the fun really begins. Because Sergey Spivak in that top position is very similar to a Marcin Tabora. He's very, very active just from the second they hit the mat. And he uses his ground and pound to really soften up his opponent and pass guard that way. So if we look at it for Spivak, obviously you can't overlook that flash knockout, that quick fight against Walt Harris. Yeah. And making the comparison, it's like... Marcin Tabora's up here, but Sergei Spivak is starting to kind of nip at his heels. And if you look at it, obviously he lost to Harris. He beats Tai Tuivasa. Well, how does he does it? How does he does it? He takes him down, he softens him up, and he submits him. He takes on Carlos Felipe. Well, Felipe's all the hotness right now of an unranked heavyweight fighter. What does Sergei Spivak do? I'm not playing your game. I'm going to take you down. I'm going to fiddle around. That sounded terrible. That did. He knocks out Jared Vandera, who I would argue is a very much 2008-2009 heavyweight. And then he takes on Alexei Olenek. And I know he beat him by decision. You might go, well, geez, Alexei's old. Sergei Spivak looked great in that fight. And he beat 
Olenek in positions that you'd think Olenek would have capitalized on. Positions where Olenek was able to outgrapple with Derek Lewis until he had that just-get-up attitude. So for Spivak, great record. Great body of work in the UFC. I absolutely love it. For Tom Aspinall, was not getting ready for a Sergei Spivak type. He was getting ready for Pavlovich, who is going to walk in there, look like a Greek god. He's built like a brick, a brick shithouse. He's a giant guy that's bodied up, and he throws a lot of power punches, and he shouldn't be ranked in the UFC because of the tweet that I brought up earlier. But if you look at it for Aspinall... A wild run so far in the UFC. Knocks out Jake Collier quickly. Knocks out Alain Badeau quickly. And then he fights Andre Arlovsky. Arlovsky was able to land some nice shots in the first round where Aspinall kind of ate them and he did his like no sell. Like his... And then he gets right to business. The thing that a lot of people were kind of like down on is the fact that Aspinall, what does he do well? Well, at the start of his MMA career, he had a little bit of boxing experience. He had a lot of jiu-jitsu experience because at Team Cowbon, his dad's a jiu-jitsu coach in the background. Tom Aspinall's a jiu-jitsu uh, coach in the background. Nobody talks about it because boxing's so good. Why is it so good? Well, as we're taping this, and this is going to be old news when it comes out, but you've got Tommy Fury, Huey Fury, and then really, well, you've got John Fury, Papa Fury, who didn't really have the greatest record at 8-4. But Matt, who's the greatest of the Furies? Huey Fury. Huey Fury is the greatest Fury? <laughs> no, Tyson Fury is the Tyson greatest Tyson Fury is the greatest Fury. And for Tom Aspinall, he was that body in the ring to get Tyson Fury ready. And that's how Aspinall's boxing got so much better. And we see that in his MMA fights. Light on the balls of his feet for a guy that's six foot five, and not even 265. He weighs in around 244, 245. Light on the balls of his feet. Hands nice and up. He has quick enough hips where he can defend takedowns if he needs to. If he needs to. And he can usually get back up. But that's a great equalizer. Spivak with the Sambo and Sumo in his back pocket. That's what makes this one tricky. I think Tom Aspinall could have fits against guys like Spivak, like Tybora. Guys that are going to wrestle you. Like a, a Curtis Blades and so on and so forth. But Aspinall, the thing that makes him great is, and we saw that in his last fight, you rock a guy like Arlovsky, most people are going to say, let him stand back up. That's like the Emmer Sabatini. Just stand him back up. Don't get into a toehold position. Just let him stand back up if he's rocked. Aspinall's so confident. He takes him down. He submits him. Nobody really does that against Andre Arlovsky. Tom Aspinall did it. He has such great boxing for this division. We were talking about this earlier in the night when we kind of got in and got settled and ready. I think Tom Aspinall gives Stipe Miocic a tough fight. That's why I edge him in a fight like this. He is a big favorite. He opened minus 300. He's minus 281 right now. There's only three or four sites that have odds because this fight was just announced. And for Spivak, he came in a plus 240. He's a plus 231 underdog. The total topology votes, not really close. 266 votes. 87% Aspinall. 77% have him to win by knockout for the 13% that have Spivak. 54% by decision. And then they're split up between knockout and submission pretty evenly. I love the fight. But I think Aspinall's that guy here in this division right now. Yeah, I think Tom Aspinall should be fighting guys like Cyril Gaunt, Steve Miocic, Derek Lewis. Like, even Jarzina Rosenstrike could be a phenomenal fight. Like, Alexander Volkov, I'm just naming everybody in the heavyweight division right now. But you get the idea. He should be fighting the elite fighters of this weight division. This is what I will say, though. 
The big X factor that Tom Aspinall has in this fight, and the big thing that separates him from Sergei Spivak, isn't just the BJJ black belt. It's hand speed. Sergei Spivak isn't a bad striker, but he's not a fast striker by any means. He looks like he's throwing punches in a swimming pool when he does move forward with his combinations, and I think Tom Aspinall is going to light him up on the feet with his hand speed, because when Sergei Spivak is slow at rechambering his strikes, that's when Tom Aspinall is going to find the holes in his game, and I think Tom Aspinall has the hand speed of a guy like Walt Harris, and I think he'll be able to land similar shots that Walt Harris was able to. For Fight Night Picks fans, it might hurt because we've been on Sergey Spivak for yeah. a very long time, but we got to go with Tom Aspinall. In this one, let us know down below in the comments section. Are you going with Team Cowbond's own Aspinall or are you going with Volkov's training partner in Sergey Spivak? Let us know on that one. Big time main event coming up. Derek Brunson taking on Darren Till. I can't wait for it. So keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks as we always say. Let's, let's get, get into it. it. Big time main event, and it is finally time for these guys to lock horns. We have Derek Brunson taking on the gorilla, Darren Till. And for Darren Till, it's been a long time away from the octagon. If this is your first time tuning in with Fight Night Picks, we'd certainly appreciate the like and the sub. You're not going to be disappointed, and hopefully you do like this video, because if it's anything like this fight, hopefully it delivers, Matt. For Derek Brunson wild resurgence. I mean, he had those two big losses. One was to Jacare Souza. One was to Israel Adesanya. He gets finished in both of them. I'd say the Jacare fight probably hurt the ego a little bit more because it was close to a hometown fight. But since then, big wins over Elias Theodoru. See you later out of the UFC. Ian Heinish, Edmund Shabazian, where he finishes him. And Kevin Holland, where he pretty well dominated pillar to post. Did he eat a few shots through the guard? Yeah, sure, but he put on a very impressive performance, and he gets to really steal the thunder of 2017, 2018's biggest star in the UFC, Darren Till, a guy who took Walter Waite by storm, ultimately lost in his opportunity for the belt against Tyron Woodley, boxing royalty. But if you look at the five on in, he beat Wonderboy at home. Close fight, right? He loses to Woodley, he loses to Masvidal, gets finished, he beats Gaslam by split decision, and he loses to Robert Whitaker in a knock-him-out, drag-him-out type of fight. Now, that Whitaker fight, in my mind's eye, but in reality, was a long time ago. It was a year and a month ago, whereas for Derek Brunson, the win streak, two years, three months, but Shabazzian was a year ago, and he just beat Kevin Holland five months ago. Again, looked great. The change over to Sanford MMA has paid off in spades for him, so it'll be interesting to see what kind of a game plan he comes in here with against Darren Till, who, through his UFC career that began in about 2015, has sported great takedown defense. He really has, and that's going to be the massive speaking point in this fight, because Derek Brunson's a weird fighter, and I'd, I'd love to get your opinion on this. Is he the first fighter to go to Sanford MMA, and his striking kind of get worse, but his wrestling get way better? The weird thing about Derek Brunson is, I don't think he's as good of a striker as he was, for instance, the first time he fought uh, Robert Whitaker, uh, right coming off the win over Uriah Hall. This isn't strike force striking Derek Brunson. No, I think he was terrible at striking there too. It was only in the UFC run. The thing about Derek Brunson though is, after he figured out, hey, I don't have the best chin and I do get hurt on the feet, why don't I just wrestle guys? It's really hard to land an overhand right off your back and it's worked out great for him as of late. The weird thing though is, and I'm going to say this now. I'm kind of siding towards Darren Till, but I'm going to lay out all the reasons why you probably shouldn't listen to what I'm about to say. His last two wins are a split decision over a guy who's looked awful against top-level competition at middleweight, and a hometown decision against Wonderboy Thompson that a lot of people thought he lost. Hardly I, any activity in that fight, too. 
I still think he's going to win this fight because the weird thing about Darren Till is he has all of the defensive attributes you look for when you're fighting a guy like Derek Brunson. Derek Brunson's real big weapons on the feet are his left overhand, his left hook, and his double leg takedowns. Darren Till's whole game is built around stopping similar weapons. And when I look at Darren Till and what he's able to do defensively on the feet, yeah, it might not always result in very exciting fights, but I always go to the interview that Robert Whittaker gave right after his fight against Darren Till. They go, Robert, how do you feel after that fight? And he goes, man, I'm so stressed out right now because when you're fighting Darren Till for 25 minutes and you're just on edge the whole entire time, you have to watch out for that strike coming back your way. I think Robert Whitaker has that level of fight IQ to where for 25 minutes he can think, okay, I have to watch out for these feints and these are the attacks that he's setting up. That's the thing that I don't know Derek Brunson has. I think Derek Brunson could go out there and out-wrestle uh, Darren Till for three rounds, kind of like he did to Kevin Holland. I think he can get top control and he can land good ground and pound in this fight. My thing is that Derek Brunson's always going to be susceptible to getting hit by those shots. Even go back and look at that Kevin Holland fight. You said it perfectly in the opening. He's dominated Kevin Holland for the entirety of their fight. And then midway through the fourth round, Kevin Holland lands like a looping left hook, a right straight. And yeah, it doesn't drop Derek Brunson. But it's one of those weird like Uriah Hall, Paulo posters where it's like, okay, you are definitely stunned at a minimum. And that's the thing. If Kevin Holland, who really is a welterweight if we're all being honest, can hurt Derek Brunson on the feet in the fifth round of of a fight that he's basically been defending takedowns for 20 of those minutes, I think Darren Till can probably land a similar shot. And this is the weird thing. I know we say this a lot in the channel. If one guy's well-rounded and the other guy's chance is only a knockout punch, nine times out of ten, we're going to go with the guy who's more well-rounded. I think Derek Brunson's is probably the more well-rounded fighter. He's definitely the better wrestler. I doubt I'm going to get any arguments on that. He's probably the better grappler when it comes to jiu-jitsu. I just think the counter-striking of Darren Till is the type of game that Derek Brunson struggles with. He does leave his chin open when he rushes forward, and those are the type of fighters who Darren Till can tee off. And I mean, with Darren Till, he keeps that left hand cocked and he keeps it low, which is kind of weird, especially when you're taking on a guy like Brunson. Good for takedown defense, but really good for those counters as well. And for Till, I mean, both guys southpaws in this one. For Till, if you look at it, I mean, you want to talk about a southpaw win? What? Uh, he was able to beat Kelvin Gaslam. He's a southpaw. Whitaker's not. Masvidal's not. Woodley's not. Wonderboy switch from both. But for Derek Brunson, again... You look at it, he had that three-round main event against Edmund Shabazian, whose cardio is bad. He had the five-round main event against Kevin Holland, whose cardio is a thing. And then this was supposed to be a main event back in August, but they moved it to this date. For Darren Till, that's the big thing about fights moving around. He's supposed to take on Hermanson late last year, he got hurt. He's supposed to take on Marvin Vittori, he got hurt and broke his collarbone. Then there was supposed to be this fight, and they moved it around a little bit. So, again... Derek Brunson, how good has he gotten at kind of defending against some of those lapses, especially against a big, rangy, powerful southpaw in a guy like Till? Because he was able to crack even Whitaker a couple times in that fight. He was, and uh, people come after me for saying this. Derek Till probably kind of won the Robert Whitaker fight. Like, he hurts him twice in that fight. If you watch the fight, I, that's not controversial. He cuts him in the fifth round, which was the biggest strike of the fight. So he could have won the fifth round. He drops him in the first round with an elbow. And then the third round, he hurts him and puts him on baby deer legs. If you hurt a guy three times in a five-round fight, more often than not, you're going to win that fight. Now, Robert Whitaker has great success in that fight, and a lot of his success comes down to his wrestling. And I think Derek Brunson is probably a better wrestler than Robert Whitaker is. The thing, though, is that Robert Whitaker chains everything together a lot better than Derek Brunson does. Derek Brunson is one of the highest-level fighters who is in striking mode, then in wrestling mode. He doesn't really have this fluidity between the two, and that's why I think he's going to get caught. It's on the in-betweens. I honestly think Martin Vittori is oddly a terrible match 
matchup for Darren Till because he is defensively sound getting his way into the clinch before he goes for his takedowns. The fact that Derek Brunson does reach for the single leg, the fact that he does reach for the clinch sometimes, with Darren Till's upright stance and upright style, I do think that's just going to open a massive opportunity for him to land an elbow or a straight shot. The last thing, though, that I will say... And this is a massive benefit for Derek Brunson. It's going to give him a lot of confidence going into this fight. Who was the last primary striker who he knocked out who was a southpaw? Well, Leona Machida. And Leona Machida, stylistically, uh, he throws a lot more kicks than Darren Till. But they are both counter-strikers who wait on the back foot. There's just a few similarities there. So it's not like it's impossible for Derek Brunson to win this fight. Like I said, he's the better wrestler. And Derek Brunson does have big power. It's just, I feel like he's gotten a little more wild with his technique as he's gotten older. And a lot of his winging shots are more for him to set up the takedowns. And I think that when you're throwing strikes to set up other things, that's when Darren Till's going to catch you. Brunson coming in on a four-fight win streak. Till one and three in his last four. And I think that's reflected in the odds because Brunson opened a, an average Minus 138 favorite. He's minus 176 right now. Till open a plus 115. He's plus 147. If we have a look at the top topology votes, Matt, uh, not really that close. 596 total votes. So it's a small sample size. 66% till, 69% by knockout for the 34% that have Brunson, 74% by decision. I like Brunson's wrestling in the first, in the second, in the third, in the fourth, I worry, in the fifth, I worry. I like Till's staying power in the fight. We saw that in the one against Robert Whitaker. And I think overall volume could even favor Darren Till. But Darren Till's got that weird story, and I'm not going to get into it because it's, it's not 2017. I don't have to hype it. But he's got that story of going to Brazil, really working his jiu-jitsu. I haven't seen it in an MMA fight. Like, it's one of those things that's mythic. It's like Shogun Hua's black belt. We just never see it. It's very different. Shogun Hua has a black belt that we don't see because it is made up. Darren Till's never said, I'm great at jiu-jitsu because I lived in Brazil. He was still primarily practicing Muay Thai in Maybe Brazil. Maybe it's just an underground king type of thing. But for me, I just, I wonder what Till's going to be able to do. Again, I talked about it. He's got that left hand cock, a la Machida. And if he gets backed up, he can definitely crack Derek Brunson. We've seen multiple fighters do it. Even fighters on the front foot. I mean, look at Jacare Souza. Pressure, pressure, knock. So there's definitely a path out there. I just favor Derek Brunson's wrestling in this one. I know there's a 10-year age gap that favors Till in this fight. It's just, I haven't seen him. The last time that he won a fight convincingly was against who? Boyan Vlitschkovich? Was that who He it beat was? Kelvin Gastelum convincingly. That wasn't a close fight. So we'll go that way, but I do like Brunson in this one. I just think Brunson leaves himself open too big. I keep For on sure. going to A-Miss Big... Uh, uh, A-Miss... Aim big, miss big. And that's what Derek Brunson does. When he lands with power shots, yes, they have a big effect, but it's so few and far in between those big power shots. Derek Brunson at one point did kind of strike like Daniel Rodriguez. He was upright. He did have great boxing. But again, when you look at him now, he rushes into his wrestling a lot. And if he did have slightly better, I would even say just clinch control because the clinch would just be a way for him to initiate the wrestling a little bit better, then I would have an easier time picking Derek Brunson. But I don't like his durability, and I do like Darren Till's cardio in this one. So I'm going to have to stick with Darren Till pick. Hopefully that change to Sanford MMA continues to work out. I mean, it's worked out great for him. Kasang and I moved down away from Brandon Allen looks great too. Guy that he trains with, guys that he trains with. So we're split on the pick. I've got Brunson in this one. You're going with 
Darren Till, let us know down below in the comment section, as you do with every single video, what you liked, what you didn't like, but more importantly, who you got in this fight. You can also hit up the super thanks if you feel obliged to. We would certainly appreciate it as you support the channel. We do these videos week in and week out. If there's any switches of the picks, any switches of the videos, I should say, or of the fights, we'll update those as needed. And if you really like us, you can definitely check us out at 15 Minute Card Breaks. It's our second channel. We just opened some UFC Panini H2 Select, the latest drop from Panini with the UFC. Some great cards there. So link down below in the description for that. We get some great fights coming up this weekend with UFC Vegas 36, headlined by Brunson and Till. I've got Brunson, you've got Till. Great weekend of fights scheduled ahead. Keep it locked in with Fight Name Picks. And as we always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it.